I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. This ain't the kind of cruise they did in American Graffiti, Bionic. Boy, isn't that right? Where were you in 62? Uh, I was like minus... Uh, like 15. I was there. just minus two. Yeah. But we're talking about a 1905 cruise. Mm-hmm. And our guest this week is James Bradley, who is the author of the book, The Imperial Cruise. And our theme this week is evidence of the long cycle of exploitative imperialism in, quote, Christian America. And this is another one of those bitter pill kind of shows. This isn't a show that I'm going to like. I can yeah. see this right now. And it's ba- it's based on a, a relatively new book that's out from a very prominent author, James Bradley. Uh, he was wrote, kind of the poster boy for, for American patriotism. Uh, with uh, Flags of Our Fathers. Wrote flags about his, his dad was one of the men who raised the flag at Iwo Jima. Mm-hmm. Made a movie, uh, Clint Eastwood did, about it. But he's writing a book about something that uh, is a little more unsavory background that we have. And he yeah. wanted to find out why his dad and his compatriots. You know, the most of those men, I believe, were killed that raised the flag. Mm-hmm. They never made it off the island. I believe his, I believe his dad did. His dad did, but yeah. most of them didn't. Most of the rest um, of them. But that, uh, he wanted to know why all this came about. Why did this war? You know, most Americans just look at Pearl Harbor like it happened in a vacuum. Like Japan just showed up, attacked, and that was mm-hmm. it. And he sort of looks at the dirty underbelly of the history, and in fact, that Japan was green-lighted, as we're going to find out, mm-hmm. by our own government. Kind of be, kind of be us by proxy, so right, to speak. Right. Right. But you're going to find that out. So let's go to our interview with Mr. James Bradley, author of The Imperial Cruise, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Doctor Future, and I'm Tom, a big fan of FDR, but I think the show might change that. Bionic. Well, not just him, but uh, anybody with the Roosevelt name. You're going to have another revisit, and that's because this week we have a very special guest with us, Mr. James Bradley, who is the author of the uh, recently new book, The Imperial Cruise. And we're going to talk this week about evidence of the long cycle of exploitative imperialism in Christian America. Uh, another touchy subject that we're going to cover, like a typical Future Quake show. And I want to tell you, Mr. Bradley, it is an honor to have a distinguished person such as yourself on the Future Quake radio show. Wow. I wish I was distinguished. Um, <laughs> my, You've my just been coronated. Fame. You've been coronated distinguished. Yeah. Well, I'm an ordinary guy, but my dad uh, raised the flag on Iwo Jima, and he stands in the middle of the Iwo Jima flag-raising photo, the most reproduced photo in history. Yeah. And he never talked about it, so after he died, I wrote a book called Flags of Our Fathers. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote another book about World War II called Flyboys. And then after that, I wondered about the origins of World War II, and that's what we're talking about with the Imperial Cruise. Well, uh, we're really looking forward to uh, going through some real details of this book. You actually stole my thunder a little bit from the questions, and I want to mention to our audience that Mr. Bradley didn't get an opportunity to see uh, my questions like most of our guests normally do uh, on Future Quake when we, when we get them in advance. So um, I was going to explain what you just explained. I appreciate you doing that about uh, your best-selling book, Flags of Our Fathers, which... Uh, it was a big movie. It yeah. was no, it was a big movie. Uh, Clint Eastwood uh, produced that movie, very popular. Uh, the book Flyboys is also extremely popular. But this particular book, The Imperial Cruise, has a particular interest for our Futurians around the world that listen to Future Quake. Um, 
I have to say that this latest book, which I read from cover to cover, as well as reading the reviews about it and some of your interviews in national media, you know, I thought we had covered, uh, well, it, it unveiled information that shocked and infuriated me, and therefore I believed was ideal fodder for our show. Uh, I, I thought we had covered about every outrage over the six years of Future Quake and, and the hundreds and hundreds of interviews that we've done. Um, but evidently, we still have yet more virgin territory of such material to cover. Uh, your book, which unveils the real history of Teddy Roosevelt, William Taft, and, and the racist beliefs of they and their fellow leaders, and even the general public at the time, and, and how they resulted in shameful atrocities uh, to the citizens in the Pacific nations and, and even initiating activities that led to the Pacific War, uh, Pacific War in World War II, was acknowledged as a work that will change history, your book, is a work that will change history's view of the Roosevelt administration, according to the New York Times. Uh, now, to begin our discussions today on this very important work that you've done, could you tell us why you originally decided to address this topic of our Asian relations and foreign policy uh, in your research in this book? Well, as I said, you know, my dad raised the flag on Iwo Jima, so I was born kind of looking at Asia. I went to school in Japan. Um, I wrote two books about World War II, and then I wondered about its origin. So I'm in the midst of reading 250 books, let's say, and traveling around Asia, just thinking about things. And I discovered that in 1905, Theodore Roosevelt dispatched the largest diplomatic delegation to Asia in U.S. history. Roosevelt packed a ship full of congressmen and senators who sailed from San Francisco to Hawaii, Japan, Philippines, China, Korea, and back 100 years later to the month. In 2005, I followed in the wake of this 1905 cruise, and I also went San Francisco, Hawaii, Japan, Philippines, China, Korea, and I was shocked by what I found which is the book, The Imperial Cruise. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I know that forms the, the narrative spine uh, of the book's premise um, that really gives you an opportunity to tell the reader the background uh, of the individuals that participated in this particular unique diplomatic mission uh, and their influences, what led them to, to, to their actions, their opinions of people of the East, and how it led to American foreign policy, and then obviously the legacy uh, that came from the events of that cruise. Uh, to, to begin in that path, and we're going to take each of these just piecemeal, one, one little piece at a time, uh, what were the early influences in Roosevelt's life that formed his worldview and later actions? And we're talking no, about I'm, Teddy Roosevelt. Right. I'd like to say something about narrative spine and and, uh, you know, those are big words for me. I'm a guy who took three universities to get a bachelor's degree. I'm an accidental historian. And I really didn't have any, you know, uh, there's no premise here and there's no theory. It's just I went on this cruise and this is what I found. The reason we're talking about race theory is because I went to San Francisco and I researched the speeches that Taft made. At that point, Taft was the Secretary of War under Theodore Roosevelt. He was the equivalent of the Secretary of Defense to Obama. And 
we had been at war in the Philippines for seven years, just like we'd been in nine years in Afghanistan. So Taft was asked, what about the Philippines? And he started explaining the Filipinos can't have their freedom because they don't have the thousands of years of, of civilization that we do. So I'm, I'm reading this in the San Francisco library, thousands of years, and I'm thinking, well, Taft went to Yale, and he must have studied, you know, the history of Greece and Rome, but it's amazing to the American public in 1905, he can talk about Rome thousands of years, and it's not even thousands of years. It's, it's, so I was confused. And then I read the Theodore Roosevelt explaining why we are in the Philippines, just as Obama will explain it. Roosevelt, uh, you know, had to explain in, in terms that everybody would understand. And he started talking, Roosevelt's talking to the public about thousands of, we have thousands of years of experience with democracy, and the Filipinos don't. And I, I have no idea what he's talking about. So I go back to Harvard, back to Yale, back to Columbia, and I read what they were taught, and I realized they were taught, they were referring to racial history. They were talking about the thousands of years of the white man's evolution from the, being the Aryan out in Asia to Germany to be the Teuton to England to be the Anglo-Saxon to America. And I'm realizing, oh, my God, the top officials of the United States government are explaining American foreign policy in terms of race theory. And then I realize political science, uh, uh, sociology, all the new um, social sciences of the 19th century were based in race theory. And I thought, you know, this is very interesting. I got a degree in history, and no one ever told me all this. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, to, to me it was an, a, a real education for me through the whole book. But, um, you know, just looking at chronologically back to the influence of these events, Teddy Roosevelt's life, from what I picked up from your book, was that obviously he was raised in an atmosphere very, very different than what the press has told us. Um, rather than having this, uh, you know, perpetual, rugged, Western, individualist lifestyle, he was raised basically an aristocrat for many, many generations out of Manhattan uh, and was rather a, a somewhat sickly kind of boy and w- seemed to have impressed upon him the need to have this kind of muscular response to others that it really almost was like a test of manhood. That's sort of what I picked up, picked up on it in that this, this, this very um, conquesting kind of attitude was something that really influenced him his whole life because of what he thought his perceived weaknesses and, and of his father as well too. Yeah, you know, people will read the book and and say, oh, my goodness, James Bradley must not like Theodore Roosevelt. But that's not true. What I'm concerned with is not Theodore Roosevelt. It's the historians who have covered up all the information about Theodore Roosevelt. And what amazed me, guys, in producing this book was the amount of hidden history that has been covered up. Mm. Uh, How is that possible you know, Roosevelt's one of the most written about guys, but as one of his biographers said recently, he was a professional author. He was a professional public relations man. He was our first public relations president, and he understood how to leave a glowing record, how to create these He-Man stories, Western stories. You know, Roosevelt said, I lived out west on and off for seven years. Well, the truth is, that's like me saying, 
you know, let, let's say I go out to Vail a couple times a year to go skiing at a at a rich man's resort, and I start telling you, you know, oh, I've been out in the Colorado mountains for seven years. It just wasn't true. He took uh, luxury trains out there, and his neighbor was a duke. And mm-hmm. but he wrote very get up and go manly books, and uh, and basically edited out anything about his life about weakness. This was a president who suffered from asthma in the White House, had severe asthma attacks, was bedridden often, but that was all hidden. And then he would go out and get on a horse and smile, and those are the photos. This is a president who played tennis all the time, all the time. He put the first tennis courts in the White House. But he said, as you see in the book, three or four different times, I quote him saying, you'll never see a picture of me playing tennis. See, Roosevelt understood the power of mm-hmm. photography at a time when photography was new. There was no Life magazine, but he understood, you know, getting these photographs of him on a horse, that's what would impress the public. Mm-hmm. And it, him and his tennis whites playing uh, tennis with his Princeton, Harvard, and Yale buddies, absolutely no way was that allowed uh, you know, it's, I mean, in terms of a photograph. You know, it's ironic that here his relative FDR later had to take similar kind of techniques to try to cover up his disability. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, where you saw almost nothing of him in a wheelchair that would impact how people would perceive him and his virility and ability to, you know, carry out his office and things like this, too. So uh, there, there's, there's a legacy there. Uh, another early influence that not only impacted Roosevelt from your book, but all of his peers, his peers even in Congress, other decision-makers in America – was this whole idea of Arianism and the progress of Arianism into the Teutonic forest of Germany and this rise of basically a superior race that embraced participative democracy uh, evolved into the Anglo-Saxon uh, experiment, which was supposedly the best of the toast of Europe, that, that of course came to America and this idea that this group was rising above all races. Can, can you give us a, a little better understanding of how that thought had evolved at the dawn of the 20th century and how that impacted the uh, the policies even that we had in our government? Well, I was shocked to learn that to get out of any Ivy League or decent university in the United States, you had to understand the myth. It wasn't They didn't think it was a myth. They thought it was science that civilization followed the sun. So out in the Caucasus Mountains north of Iran, the word Iran is a derivative of the word Aryan. Mm -hmm. A great Aryan race arose, and they were big and blonde and blue-eyed and really great. And they grew, and they went north, south, east, and west. They migrated. Well, the ones who went east, they went to China, and that's why China had a great civilization. Now, this is the myth. Right. Because these white Aryans invigorated it. They were potent. But then they made the mistake of uh, mating with those Chinese girls, and they sullied the seed, according to the myth, and China declined. The, the Aryans who went south to India, India had a great civilization because of that but then they sullied the seed by mating with Indians. So the 
Aryans who followed the sun west. The west, the sun always goes west, west, west. And the intelligent Aryans who went west went to what we now call as northern Germany. And they had the, this was, this was in the books, they had the race intelligence to slaughter all the non-Aryan women. The race intelligence. And Roosevelt would speak about race uh, intelligence and race thinking and race conflict and race this and race that. That's how everyone talked at Harvard and, and John Hopkins and Yale and Columbia in the 19th century. But it's been covered up. So the Teuton had the race intelligence to kill all the non-Aryan women. And then the Teuton uh, uh, baked in the northern German forest for centuries and they went north, south, east, and west. Well, the ones who went south, they invigorated Egypt, Greece, Rome. According to the myth, that's why they had great uh, civilizations. But they slept with those Mediterranean girls, so things didn't work out. It was the Teuton that went west that followed the sun to England that then slaughtered all the non-Teutonic women in England. Massacre is key here they became the Anglo-Saxon. We get the Parliament, we get the Industrial Revolution, we get Shakespeare. And then, according to American college textbooks of the 19th century, the Anglo-Saxon went across the Atlantic and had the, quote, race intelligence, unquote, to slaughter all the Indians. So in 1905, the globe was becoming white, and if you were going to argue against the fact that the whites were were supreme, it was kind of hard. It wasn't like some Ku Klux Klan strange belief. If you challenged me and said, hey, what is this whites? I would say, look at the globe. The British have India, you know, Africa. The Germans are in southern Africa. The French have Vietnam. I mean, it's becoming the whites are taking over because we are superior because we came from the Aryan Sea. So when the Americans got to the West Coast, San Francisco, they looked at Asia and thought that there, it was their destiny to continue to follow the sun, to circle the circle. Walt Whitman and Leaves of Grass, everyone would think Walt Whitman, America's greatest poet, nice, soft, liberal guy. Leaves of Grass, he has a poem talking about the Aryan imperative for America to move from San Francisco out to Asia and to circle the globe with whiteness. So that wasn't racism. Racism was a concept invented in the 1930s. I'm talking about Theodore Roosevelt back in 1905. Mm -hmm. This was race theory that everyone working at the New York Times or at, uh, you know, there were no radio stations. Right. Your grandfather and my mm -hmm. grandmother and everyone alive just believed this was the way the world had developed. And, and, and which would certainly explain why people could go along with eugenics, uh, that was, that was really big at the early 20th century, either positive eugenics or negative eugenics of, of selective breeding or of forced sterilizations and things like that that were ongoing. But you know, people of my generation were taught that this whole belief in Aryan superiority was, was sort of a Nazi kind of thing. Uh, that was the thing that they invented, and that was part of the really bad thing that they that they did. Uh, one of the things we do know is that the Germans had some kind of affinity for um, British and American POWs, for example. I mean, it was still terrible being a POW in their camps, but they were treated differently 
than, say, Russians or others, from, from what I've read in other sources, because Germans thought higher of them because of this, this Aryan-type blood connection or legacy. So it has all kind of strange tentacles and how it reaches our society. But that's the key in understanding your book, was that that was, that was politically correct teaching at the time. In fact, some of the derogatory words, I mean, the, the N-word was used regularly uh, by these leaders, our, our government officials, and it wasn't directed just at people that of African American background in our country, but worldwide, anybody who didn't fit in this Aryan white Christian background was just considered that. And it wasn't the sake of just saying that destiny will lead them to be in positions of prominence and prosperity, but but they believed that eradication was uh, sometimes just a necessary thing. Was it not that actually eradicating some of these other people was was sometimes there was no other option? Well, it was a little more positive than that. Eradication was helping the world. So it wasn't like no other option. Oh, my goodness, I have to close my eyes and kill these uh, people who don't look like me. It was we need to kill these people who don't look like us to better the world. If, if if this race becomes extinct now, but can I back up? Because we're talking about Theodore Roosevelt, we're talking about America, and then in your introduction you mentioned Christians. I'd like to open up the uh, go up, go up in the sky with me and look down at the globe. Let me ask you a question: Why do they speak Spanish in Peru? How come they speak English in Sydney? How come they speak Japanese in Tokyo? I'll tell you the answer. It's because the people who had that language massacred everyone they didn't look like them. Hmm. So the reason they speak Spanish in Peru is because the Spanish came over the Andes and killed everyone who didn't speak Spanish, and now they speak Spanish. The reason they speak English in Australia is because, you know, people who spoke English came in there and killed everybody. So that is history. This is not a specifically American, Christian, Theodore Roosevelt thing. This is human nature. Mm-hmm. There is no people who spread over any landmass that did not do the same thing. What's different is that America will recognize if the Chinese do it or the Indians do it or the Germans do it, uh, but uh, we don't want to talk about us doing it. Right, and, and that's one reason why this book really resonated with me. Is you know we're on a Christian radio station, speak to a Christian audience, and, and and part of our calling is to try to debunk a little mythology, particularly American mythology, as we try to understand our faith even better and and really know what's going on in the world. And, and America has always had a little air of elitism that we were morally superior to other people, uh, and part of it was our Christian faith and our and our, our ideals. In fact. Um, you know, we're, we're being called a Christian nation right now, which I want to ask you about later, that this is sort of timely, your book, given that this has reemerged in the political discussions right now. But but with this era of superiority, at the same time, what comes clear in your book is, is, like you say, other nations have done these kind of activities, but we have always sort of felt like we were a little cut above those kind of people and actually even more civilized than our European forebears, at least uh, some people, but this book you know, seems like to make it clear that uh, we have some of the same issues that the people we point fingers at uh, as well, too. Um, now, as far as the, uh, in in the United States, um, 
I found interesting the influences that you discovered and you had meticulous research in your book. Uh, and it wasn't just the Indians uh, that I saw pointed out in your book that, that were systematically eradicated. And one, one of the most fascinating things in your book, and that's why I want all of our listeners to get a copy of your book, is that the pictures that you show from newspapers, from magazines of this era, show things that, that to our mindset are so ludicrous, the pictures of how demeaning they are to people, the differences, the, the caricatures. But yet, I, my, in, in my heart, I really believe that that's not over, that that's still going on. It's just different people that it's we caricature now. Yeah. yeah, it's just just a different set of, uh, of the time. But but now, this was even addressed to Mexicans, was it not? Whether it was Mexicans, Indians, anybody that didn't come from our European background were really targets for eradication, first on our continent and then beyond. Well, once again, that's human nature. You don't look like me. I... Uh... I have a problem mm-hmm. that apparently is, uh, uh, you know, consistent uh, with humans. We're back at Future Quake with Doctor Future and Tom. Uh, things are starting to get uncomfortable. We we went yeah. we went like really sad really quickly. And this is just Monday. I mean, yeah. you just wait. It's going to get worse. Uh, you you had mentioned if there's any quotes yeah. here. We talked toward the end of this segment about. Uh, the belief that was commonplace, not not just in Europe but America, particularly about uh, us being Aryans mm-hmm. and then coming through the Teutons and then the Anglo-Saxons, this was not just Hitler's Germany that taught Aryan superiority. No, this was a this was a wide widespread thing and taught all over the place. All of our leaders, people who were famous that we revere in our history in America, taught yeah. it. Here, here's the basics of what they were taught in their books or textbooks. It says. The centuries of Aryan and Teuton history revealed the three laws of civilization. The white race founded all civilizations. When the white race maintains its whiteness, civilization is maintained. When the white race loses its whiteness, civilization is lost. A glance revealed the truth of these declarations. The Anglo-Saxons were a liberty-loving people who spawned the Magna Carta, debated laws in Parliament, produced exemplars like Shakespeare, and tinkered the Industrial Revolution life. But woe to those who ignored civilization's rules and went south to Africa or east to Egypt, India, or China. The Anglo-Saxon and those benighted countries were but small rays of light overwhelmed by more populous dark races. There were just too many Africans, Indians, and Chinese to slaughter in order to establish superior civilizations. The best that could be hoped for was an archipelago of white settlement and the exploitation of local primitives in order to produce greater European riches, which is like South Africa. Mm. Given such constraints, civilization and democracy could reach the next level of evolution only if the Anglo-Saxon moved westward. Progress sailed across the Atlantic with the white Christians who followed the sun west to North America. And once again, emulating their successful Aryan and Teuton forebears, the American Aryans eliminated the native population. From Plymouth Rock to San Francisco Bay, the settlers slaughtered Indian men, women, and children so democracy could take root in civilization as they understood it. The sparkle from sea to shining sea. And they believed that they were Anglins of, uh, Anglo-Saxons of England uh, from a more th- than a thousand years before from the high-minded, freedom-loving Anglo-Saxons in the woods of Germany. Hmm. So, and that's the, not encouraging. No, it's not, and it's going to get worse. Uh, you're going to find out about stuff we've been doing for a long time, and unashamedly in our history. And there's no surprise we have enemies in our country. Mm-hmm. But somebody who's not our enemy is more if he can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information.
email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We've got to go. All right, let's get out of here. <coughs> come back for tomorrow's, or excuse me, come back for the next segment or show. <coughs> Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, uh, a little bit disconcerted about Teddy Roosevelt's true history, Bionic. Well, uh, you're going to be more so when you hear the rest of our interview this week with our guest this week, James Bradley, who is the author of the new recent book out called The Imperial Cruise. Mm -hmm. We're talking about this week about evidence of the long cycle of exploitative imperialism in Christian America. Hmm. I know that sounds very, like... Softy, bleeding heart, liberal. Than it to say that. Well, I mean, but let, let our listeners it like, judge it themselves. Yeah, if when you they compare hear it. it to like the rah rah sis boom ba you hear on, you know, pick your favorite television station where they give like thirty second sound bites and expect you to digest it and interpret mm-hmm. the world. Yeah, you know what's going on and the yeah. complexities of different cultures mm-hmm. and ethnicities. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> this book, we cannot do it justice in terms of the depth of the information. We're only able to hit a few high points in this interview. Maybe we should do, like, sometime in the next few months, just go back and read some quotes. Everybody really needs to get a copy of this and really digest it and, and hold it up in, in comparison as a mirror to where we are today, and you're going to find some unmistakable things. But with history, you can have some hindsight. You find their letters, mm-hmm. what their motives were, what they're really behind, and it will make you much more aware and understanding of what we have going on today in our world mm-hmm. by looking at this book, talking about the time of Teddy Roosevelt and this imperial cruise in, in 1905, uh, developing a foreign policy of, of uh, basically conquering. Yeah. conquest in like, in Asia. Yes, yeah, kind of like a eugenics racist sort of that divine right. Untold numbers of lives. Uh, in, in the, three quarters of a million in the Philippines alone? Right. Yeah. It's just, it's unheard of. It's horrid. Well, uh, here's our next segment with James Bradley, and we'll be back, right back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. You, you know, in your book, you didn't mention this, but um, one of the areas that we've talked about with some other guests in the past that are similar to this talk about the Anglo-American, you know, burden and superiority uh, was was a group formed by Cecil Rhodes called Cecil Rhodes Roundtable uh, that had many of the same um, grandiose visions for world conquest and had the top leaders had people like uh, Winston Churchill and several of our presidents, and Wilson, even Truman, was part of this. Did, did any of that come up in your research about the influence of Cecil Rhodes' roundtable in this this goal for for the UK and for the US to con- for this world mission? You know, I'm aware of. Um, you know, I was uh, I lived in South Africa and down there in Cecil Rhodes, and. Uh, Yes, I'm I'm aware of the roundtable, but there's so much material I had to leave out of the book, and mm. I was focused on Asia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Rhodes and and the boys are are focused in different areas. What I did is I took Theodore Roosevelt, 
1905, very narrow. I wondered, why is he sending this diplomatic delegation to Asia? Why is it so huge? Why is he sending his number two guy to lead it, uh, William Howard Taft, Secretary of War? And I had no idea. And this was front page New York Times news. And uh, so I thought, wow, this is interesting. Biggest dip- diplomatic delegation. I think I'll uh, read a couple books on it. And there's zero books on it. Mm-hmm. So I went out to Asia thinking, maybe I'm on a loser's uh, journey here. How can I find something new 100 years later? But I was shocked what is in this book, The Imperial Cruise, about all the hidden history that apparently we're not allowed to know. Well, there's so much material in that book. Every time I would get, I'd tell my wife as I was reading it, I'd get through a few pages and think, how can it get worse? And then a few pages later, we'd find out more uh, information. And, uh, I mean, people are going to get an incredible wealth of information within the pages of this book when they get it. But, you know, our first experience that that I know in our hopscotching from filling what we considered our manifest destiny to to spread the the white Christian Anglo-Saxon superiority around the world, our first stop was in Hawaii. Uh, off of our Pacific coast. Can you tell us, based on what you talked about in your book, uh, what, what did Western visitors and missionaries bring to Hawaii uh, as a result? Well, what happened with Hawaii, the, you know, I had no idea until I went out there and lived there to write this part. Hawaii is the furthest thing away from everything else in the world. So let me repeat that. Hawaii is the furthest away from everything of anything in the world. In other words, New Zealand's right next to Australia and Mexico's right next to America. But Hawaii, because the Pacific is seven times larger than the Atlantic, it's huge, is far, far, far away from everything. So you have to imagine George Washington was sworn in as president. And if I had walked up to George Washington on that day in New York and said, Mr. President, where is Hawaii? No one had ever said the word. We had no idea. There was no Hawaii. So five years after George Washington becomes president, Captain Cook of England happens to stumble upon this unknown set of islands, Hawaii, and he brings the plague. So that starts to decimate. About a, there's about a million Hawaiians, and eventually they got down. There's about 5,000 left today. So it was a disease that the Hawaiians had never dealt with. But when the American missionaries hit Hawaii, after the plague was eating away at the population, they thought this was God's providence. They saw some uncivilized people. I mean, the Hawaiians were standing on surfboards, you know, uh, half-clothed. And these New England missionaries came in and thought they were disgusting. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they were dying was God's providence. So the missionaries saw that the Hawaiians were dying, and then they also realized that the Hawaiians had no idea of property rights. So they changed a few rules, and the missionaries got control of the property in Hawaii and became the billionaires who who ruled Hawaii with an iron uh, grip through much of the 19th and 20th century. And uh, we took Hawaii over in 1898, President McKinley thought he needed it as a stepping stone to the riches of China. And just pushed out their 
legal official there, right? I mean, they really the boat pulled in. They marched the people in. There was a little bit of uh, some controversy when I read from your book in in Washington, but there were key people both in Hawaii working together with their select people in Washington and were very cagey in how they played everything right by already having troops on the ground to eventually make this de facto a possession without any of the Hawaiians really having any say at all on what occurred, correct? Well, Mike, Mike uh, you use the words cagey and push out. Uh, I might use the words patriotic. These were American Marines, you know, doing their patriotic duty. This was seen as a very patriotic, uh, all-American thing. The... The Marines marched off a ship, went to the Hawaiian Palace. Now, downtown Honolulu, the uh, Hawaiian Palace that the Queen was in, that palace had electricity and indoor plumbing before the White House did in Washington. (laughs) Sounds pretty primitive, pretty savage people. You know, so the Marines went up to the Queen of Hawaii and put a bayonet to her neck and said, you might want to leave. And that's how we got Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you go into great detail about the, the the financial dealings that these individuals, the missionaries and others that were su- supporters there, on, on being able to get that kind of financial control, uh, then form something akin to a, like a party, some kind of party that pushed these entrants and, and actually came up with some kind of fabricated uh, urgency that they had where they thought they might be at some kind of danger, some kind of excuse to be able to, to do these kind of actions. But it, it, it's, it's an event to, to some shape or form seems like was played over and over again. And I think it's very important for our Christian audience to know that this is in our history and it, and it impacts the reputation we have in the world now even today. Uh, that that it still has a has a major bearing. In fact, the very demeaning view that we have of these people, their traditions, their lifestyle, and things like this, um, and, and and the moral high ground we think we have, when really I, th- I think we show some of the most base elements of morality in, in the way that we've dealt with these people. Uh, one of the p- p- persons you mentioned, this is a little departure from the uh, foreign policy narrative, but but someone that you that you talk about quite a bit, and it's more the human interest side of this story was that Teddy Roosevelt decided to put his daughter Alice on on this ship. Uh, and I just wondered if you could make some brief comments about what you thought she was like and her personality and why you were really fascinated to bring that up in your story. Well, poor Alice. Um, again, I, I don't have a premise or this is not a novel. So, you know, she was there. So I wrote about her. That, that's the only reason. I mean, I didn't. I was not sculpting this book. I just threw myself out in the Pacific and wrote about what I found. There's over 40 pages of of footnotes in the book. Alice, poor Alice, she's 21 years old. Her father and she have a horrible uh, relationship. It's just I feel so sorry for this girl. And I I couldn't believe that it, it, it had not been brought out more about Theodore Roosevelt and his daughter. I mean, imagine this. You have, you get married, and your wife dies in childbirth, and you have a baby called Alice. Your mm-hmm. the wife dies in childbirth. You get remarried, and then you decide never to talk to Alice directly about her mother. Alice, Theodore Roosevelt died never talking to his daughter about her natural mother. 
And she writes, as you wow. see in the book, that this just blew my mind. It twisted her. Mm -hmm. Hi, Dad. How you doing? You know, it's such a cold, distant relationship. Never once in their relationship did they ever acknowledge that she had a different mother than her stepmother. On the on the on the night of Alice's marriage, she's happy. She says, "Oh, stepmother, you gave me such a wonderful wedding." The stepmother said, "You've been nothing but trouble, and I'm glad you're leaving." I mean, it was just a brutal upbringing for this poor Alice Roosevelt, who went on to have a twisted life. But she was a 21-year-old, uh, uneducated. You know, Theodore Roosevelt believed in Harvard educations for his male uh, offspring. The girls, you know, you can learn how to do the dishes. Mm -hmm. And so Alice was a 21-year-old, and she was desperate to get out of her parents' situation. So on the ship, she's having a relationship with an older congressman, a philanderer, an alcoholic, and she has a lot of doubts about him, but she writes in her diary, I just have to get away from my father. Hmm. So, I, I was, I, I'm, I, so I'm not criticizing you know, Theodore Roosevelt and that relationship. I don't need to do that. I guess what I'm, I'm stunned by is that historians have... have just allowed a lot of this information, not not allowed, they they have actively hidden this information. Well, and, and to me, when, when I read that, I mean, not only does it affect world geopolitics, but it affects the family unit with this kind of, uh, there's, there's a view, a face view, and then there's what's reality, what goes on behind closed doors. And, and when you have that facade, it affects how people around the world look at you and even inside your own household. And to me, there's no surprise that there was a lost generation that formed. Of course, World War One is always, you know, the primary excuse given for this generation of the the people and others who sort of checked out of the regular views and and uh, you know the optimism of advancing society that happened after War One. But but there really was it seems like a backlash of a generation to what they saw, and I I even wonder if some of that's happening today. Um, there, there's another factor that was really influencing the impact not only of America but other Western nations in particular with Asian nations um, in in the years prior to this imperial cruise in the, in the second half of the 1800s in particular, and that is the, the opium trade. Uh, can you explain how the opium trade impacted the British Empire and riches in Asia and how they dealt with the nations there as, whether, as well as even other notable people in history as well? Well, if you think about it, empire is really unprofitable. And, uh, you know, wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, or or a war that someone else would fight, Argentina and the Falklands, it's very draining empire. And the British Empire lasted for a, a long time. Well, I discovered that the slush fund, the easy profits, 20% of the British Empire's take was opium. Now, the so, entire empire, 20% well, of all their income in the whole empire. Yeah, it's hard to that, nail it down, and we're talking me. about a long time. But we're talking like 15 to 20% of the money coming into London was opium. Now, the opium was grown in India, which... You know, it's kind of... It was a cheap acquisition price. Send your military shoot a bunch of Indians and take over a whole continent. So they got the continent, and it so happens 
you know, if if you know, do you know about ginseng? Ginseng likes a certain soil. Mm-hmm. Or if you know about the grapes that are made into wine, they only like a certain sort of soil. You know, you're not going to have a lot of wine made in uh, Antarctica. And and opium loves the soil in the northern Ganges River Valley of India. So the British had this huge, huge bureaucracy where they were funding, working with, encouraging, lending money to one million opium farmers. Now, let's just stop there. Just imagine if I said in Iowa there were one million pig farmers. I mean, that's impossible. Mm -hmm. That would take like half the West to have one million, you know, wheat farmers, right? So uh, there's one million opium farmers that the British... So they go to you, you're an Indian, and they say, and, and you say, you know, I want to raise some uh, uh, rice and wheat and pigs and stuff for my family. No, we won't give you a dime. Oh, okay, I'll raise opium. Okay, here's a loan. So they would loan you money if you were become an opium farmer, and they took this um, uh, huge amount of opium, funneled it down to Calcutta, and then shipped it to Canton, which is now Guangzhou and Hong Kong. Uh, if folks are wondering about the geography, mm-hmm. Britain has India. They put the opium on a ship. They run it around Singapore, up the coast of China, and they insert it in Hong Kong and, and Canton. Well, well, it was completely illegal to sell this opium into China. So in other words... It's like the Cali cartel taking cocaine right. and running it up to Bermuda and then inserting it at night into the New York Harbor. So mm-hmm. it was against the law, but it was extremely profitable. So the British and the Americans were dealing with Chinese criminals. And, you know, it was, it was an illegal trade, but it was so profitable. So let me ask you today, what's more profitable you know, selling, um, uh, you know, bread at uh, the bakery or selling uh, drugs in America. Drugs are very profitable. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. British had this enormous, it was the number one most profitable commodity trade of the 19th century. This is the number one mm-hmm. most profitable thing of the 19th century. And then the Americans got in it. Imagine my surprise. I go out to China and I stumble upon the source of the fortune that supported Franklin Delano Roosevelt. wasn't his to his credit or his fault. But his grandfather, Warren Delano, was the opium king of China. The fortune that supported... Franklin Delano Roosevelt's father was a semi-rich, not wealthy, farmer up on uh, uh, the Hudson River. He didn't have big money. The big money came from the Delano line, and that was all opium money. Man. Now, now I don't mean to get off topic here, but didn't Joe Kennedy get similar money? I think it was more from bootlegging or something like that of alcohol. Wasn't, wasn't that a major part of in the Kennedy family as well? Yeah, I mean, that's way out of my time zone. Yeah, I'm, okay. <laughs> I'm doing that in my next book, but... yeah. You know, and I, I have to repeat to the – see, I just mentioned Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In my book, The Imperial Cruise, which we're discussing, uh-huh. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was about 25 years sure. old at this point. Sure. So, but the point is, is that 
if you go to Harvard and you go into Cabot House, your son goes to Harvard, he gets he bunks in Cabot House. That's opium money that built that uh, that uh, dormitory. Mm-hmm. If you go to Yale, you might stumble upon the big cement building that is the Skull and Bones Society. Well, Skull and Bones, I'm, I would guess you've covered it about 13 times on your... <laughs> it's right? having to come up yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, Skull and Bones, who pays for that? Did anyone ever uh, talk about that? Uh, no. Tell us. Okay. Well, people assume <laughs> there's a building on the Yale campus. It's right. called Skull and Bones. It's a Yale... No, 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 no. It's privately funded by the Russell Trust. The Russells were the largest opium dealers in China. They employed Warren Delano. If you go to Columbia University, and Mike or Mike, you are elected president of Columbia University. Which could still happen. Yeah. It could happen. But they will take your portrait standing in front of Lowell Library, the number one architectural monument on the Columbia campus. The Lowell Library is dedicated to an opium dealer. Princeton was founded by John Green, who made his fortune with Warren Delano selling opium. So it's as if the Cali cartel made all this opium money. And you know what the Cali cartel did with a lot of that uh, cocaine money in Colombia? They built churches. They built libraries. They Mm -hmm. built philanthropic situations back home. Mm -hmm. And this is what these East Coast opium dealers who, you know, Unfortunately, millions of Chinese died of the product, but they uh, brought back huge profits. AT&T was founded by opium money. So I'm not wow. criticizing any, anyone here, by the way. What I'm saying is this is just what was going on, and the what I'm criticizing is the fact that I got a history degree and I was not allowed to know right. this information. Well, and that's see, that's the point why we do this show is that we didn't learn this in history as well, and we have to really dig to find people like yourself who take the effort to set the record straight because it completely changes the way we can look at events today and completely change our understanding and perceptions of how we address today's issues by, by setting the record straight. And I just find it ironic that you take the the, the Anglo-British-American um, elitist view that we were the moral superior spreading our religion, spreading our our moral purity to help the savages around the world, while at the same time we're we're the main drug runners. And in the case of the opium wars, if I understand it, China was trying to make sure that it did not have a corrupting effect on their populace and pass these laws because we were being the pushers on the Chinese populace to sell it to get them all wrung out on drugs and then complaining about it back in our newspapers in the United States that they were just a bunch of uh, opium junkies. Uh, you know, on the opium we sold them, uh, and, and then uh, when he, when the emperor is trying to stop the spread of opium, what do the British do? They immediately go to war to be able to push their drugs. Is that is isn't that sort of what the record says? Uh, yes, sir. I'd say it in a little different words. What I would say is, when um, the emperor said, "Okay, come on, you British. I mean, don't push drugs on us. Please stop." We're going to put a stop to this, and we hope you understand. You know, have it, it's like someone beating someone to death. You know, please show mercy. So the British, the the Chinese said to the British, please show mercy. 
Well, well, Queen Victoria was like 21, 22 years. It's in the book correctly, but without looking at the book, I think mm-hmm. she was 21, 22 years old, about four years into her rule. Her advisors came and said, you know, you want to lose 20% of the empire's income? You want to lose all the profits? No way. They sent the industrialized British Navy out to bomb all the Chinese who disagreed. We had to keep the drug thing going. It's as if the Columbia uh, cocaine barons had a mechanized Navy to bombard New Jersey and New York to make sure that the cocaine, that the cocaine kept coming. And I, I want to amend my comments to saying I'm not criticizing, you know, the British and the Americans and we were so terrible and, oh, my God. It's kind of the way the world was. And all of the white countries looked at Asia See, Asia was collapsing. Theodore Roosevelt's theories, he learned that uh, Columbia and Harvard, it wasn't like, you know, let's go attack these Chinese and be terrible. No, we were doing them a favor because their, their civilization was collapsing. It was impotent, and we were potent, and the potent ones took over. So that's how we looked at our West. Mm-hmm. The Indians would have lived if they were potent, but they were impotent. So whenever we shot them, they died. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom never was more convicted uh, than the last set part of this interview because, like Jesus said, you'll know my people by how much they love each other. Mm-hmm. And they're going to hear that. That's going to be a couple days from now, but they're going to hear some of the things that were said when we wrap this up. But yeah. we, we already heard about uh, our use of Asia basically to be able to create dope fiends yeah. and to be able to, between us and the British, yeah. uh, be much, able to be drug the, pushers to make our wealthy. Uh, it was like 20 25%. 20% of the total incoming wealth income of the empire british empire was yeah. opium it was drugs yeah and it was ruining china china tried to make laws to stop it and the british didn't care and that's why when people talk about stopping the drug sales and drug laws the main people who fight it are states because the state is has always been historically the main one selling drugs mm-hmm. well under that, the table you, and they only want to do it for themselves well you know in california the interesting thing is is that it's going to crash the it's going to crash the price of the uh, of the street the, right. You know, the the marijuana initiative mm-hmm. they have there, which, you know, I don't use it, so I how's don't the, care. How's the CIA going to make their money? But but the thing is, it's going to be an incredible moneymaker for the state of California, mm-hmm. and which is why, it, I think, why I think it's on the ballot. Well, they get it either way yeah. because, well, the feds sell it. Yeah, well, um, the, the, the state of California instead of the feds, so, you know. Yeah. Uh, let me just say a little quick quote here. I've got to be real quick here. Mm-hmm. Here's just an example of the, of the minds at the time. Here's General Sherman. Uh, you know, who we knew from the Civil War and the Indian Wars, uh, he, he ordered his troops as an example of, of how we handled things. During an assault, the soldiers cannot pause to distinguish between male and female or even discriminate as to age. They did not, and through decades, the Indian dead included uncounted thousands of mothers, children, and elderly. Some killed merely for sport, their private parts sliced off and used to make prized wallets or to decorate hats as scalps and genitals displayed as trophies. And, you know, that's happening in Iraq and Afghanistan right now according to the reports we've read on our show. Well, one of the most disconcerting things I saw was this Iraq War Diaries where 66,000 of the 100,000 people who died over there were civilians. Mm -hmm. 66,000. And they cried out to God, and God has heard their prayers. 
and now what happens? I don't know. Come back for our next segment tomorrow on Future Quake. Oh, wait. Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We have to go. We're running late. Come back for our next segment tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And Tom... I'm just not a fan of this this race history stuff. It's really despicable, bionic. Well, I want to comment on that, but first let me tell our listeners that you are getting ready to listen to the third installment of our interview with James Bradley, the author of the uh, recently new book, The Imperial Cruise, talking about evidence of the long cycle of exploitative imperialism in Christian America. That's a mouthful, but uh, the book is about an event in 1905, a diplomatic cruise, that set the stage for World War II and I believe showed America at its worst. And some of it was stimulated by teaching uh, that, that impacted our leaders like Roosevelt and Taft and others, uh, which you were referring to, which is this mm-hmm. this whole race basis. Race, what do they call it, race theory, I think? Race theory. And even Christians, the Christian community portrayed their part of saying that it, it wasn't just uh, African Americans, but it was other Pacific Islanders, anybody mm-hmm. who was not of Anglo-Saxon, Teutonic, Aryan blood. Well, and and they guess, used the term Aryan when my, they described it. My guess in all of this stuff is that, like, somewhere in there, like, the people who were real Christians, and I hate to use that term, but the people who were, like, mm-hmm. born again, blood of the You're Lamb, right, right. you know, they saw through this. Uh, I think I'd mentioned beforehand George mm-hmm. Whitefield and his mm-hmm. letter to Southern slave owners saying, I, I'm not here to argue for or against mm-hmm. slavery, but what you are doing in treating other people is wrong. Well, and you know, the implication in this book is that much of these actions where we betrayed all of our allies mm-hmm. in the Pacific, let them on, we were going to support them, and then gave them away mm-hmm. for our cause. This was opposed by a lot of the people in the Senate, in the mm-hmm. House. And they did an end run around it. They did it around without ever getting approval for anything. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know if you remember in our in our recent war we had that we uh, we never got congressional approval yeah. for a war for it yeah and so there's like almost no oversight find out after the again, fact again it'd be awesome if I had tons of money because I'd buy that buy the Imperial Cruise for the entire Nashville school system and have everybody read it wouldn't that be awesome yeah I, I think every Christian needs to read it because when, when when like we've just talked about about the missionaries going into Hawaii. And taking advantage of the people's lack mm-hmm. of understanding of personal property, mm-hmm. buying up all their property, taking all their wealth, and then they started an effort to overthrow their leader, which they were happy with, mm-hmm. to have one where they basically had total autocratic control. Yeah, I know. And that's sick. They associated Jesus with that. Well, and what was that? What was that? They were calling the opium in China. Yeah, the Jesus, Jesus opium. Jesus opium. Yeah. This, the, the people who were telling them about Jesus were also the ones ripping them off and pumping them full of dope. Man.
Now, I'm not saying every missionary went over there was involved with that. Obviously, that's sure. not true. It's hard pressed to see Hudson Taylor involved in any of that. Exactly, exactly. But um, the connection was there, and that impact impacts how people around the world perceive us. Mm-hmm. And it's really there. But we'll let you be a judge because here's our next segment with James Bradley of the Imperial Cruise, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. By collapsing, but wasn't there barometer whether you were actually actively attacking other nations and imperially taking over other nations? Wasn't there, that their litmus test of whether you were a, a viable society or whether you were expansionistic like you were? And that if you were right. minding your own business, then that meant that you were backward and, and out of touch right. with the future? Uh, you know, right. the, 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 the part of the book that to me was the, 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 the central Basis. I mean, there's so many facets you cover in the book. Each one of them are important. But, but the main one that set the theme for me was our experience in the Philippines, which very, very few Americans know virtually anything about. C- can you give us just sort of a general description of the American actions in the Philippines, uh, our interactions with the people there? Um, just just a, a capsule. I know you could go on and on about it, but... But, but but generally a chronology of the events that occurred there. I can, but can I introduce, you know, what it what the effort it took to understand what went on. So the Philippines, that was like Afghanistan in terms of a major multi-year war, and it was more than that in that we ruled the place for 40 years. But I can't tell you how many books I had to read, how many thousands of pages of documents I had to read, to begin to understand what really happened because it was all euphemized. It was all translated inaccurately uh, into our situation. This was, okay, now we have to back up. What's the central focus of the Empire guys? The Empire guys, now I'm in the 1890s, they say, you know, there's 400 million Chinese. The British are getting rich in China. China's the future. The Aryan's going to go from San Francisco out to the Orient. China's the big prize. So the problem is, how are we going to get that Chinese wealth into our country? China was the richest country in the world for almost all human history. When the French were digging garlic out of the ground with their dirty fingernails, China was you know, eating with gold chopsticks. When, when Gutenberg was trying to figure out how to mass-produce books, the Chinese had bestsellers running off of printing presses, and they wore silk uh, clothes. So China was very rich. And, you know, Henry Hudson came uh, to America to find the route to China. Thomas Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark out to figure out how can we get to China. So it was always about getting rich on China. So in the 1890s, Teddy Roosevelt and these guys say, you know what, China... If we take these islands, the Philippines, Guam, and Hawaii, then we've got coaling stations. It's like Internet stops on the way to America. And then if we cut a canal across Panama, we can get uh, the China goods into the Caribbean. And then if we capture Puerto Rico and Cuba, then those are also Internet stop nodes, you know, to get this riches of China through. And then we can get the riches of China up to uh, East Coast ports. So we started some wars, fabricated the reasons to get Puerto Rico, to get uh, Cuba. We stole Panama. We uh, took Hawaii, Guam, the Philippines. 
And Roosevelt thought that was the way we were going to intake the riches of China. Well, it would have been cheaper to rent a warehouse in Hong Kong. Right. It proved to be horribly expensive. He never admitted the failure of his uh, plan, but uh, that was the idea. Okay, so we go down to the Philippines. Could I insert just one comment in here that led to this for you to take over? What, what, I, what I recollect reading from your book was that one thing we know about in the Spanish-American War, I guess 1898, was, the, was remembering the main, when the main... Uh, blew up uh, in the harbor, I guess, Havana Harbor. Um, and it was blamed on the Spanish, and it was the excuse for us to attack, including attacking them in the Philippines to get rid of our competition in the Philippines. Uh, did, did, didn't you say in your book that later our government, in essence, admitted that that was a false flag event when FDR formally apologized to the Spanish during his administration over falsely accusing them later? Yes, sir. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, hmm. in uh, 1898, with no proof, said that the Spanish blew up the main. He was like a Dick Cheney who was egging America onto war under false pretenses. And it's very difficult to find that written anywhere. But, mm-hmm. um, no, Roosevelt was all over with uh, unsubstantiated charges. Just like Cheney said... You know, Iraq was involved in 911, which is totally untrue. Theodore Roosevelt said that Spain was involved in the blow up of the main, which uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt later admitted was a falsehood. Mm-hmm. But American historians are still a little slow to uh, tag uh, Teddy with that uh, Cheney like uh, march to mm-hmm. war. But let's mm-hmm. get back to the Philippines. Sure. So the Philippines. McKinley, who doesn't know anything about the world, thinks it's a hitching post. He used the words hitching post. Oh, Manila can be a hitching post to China, you know, some place to put the horse. Well, uh, we invaded the country with 10 million Filipinos. And because we thought we were Aryans going west and this was good for everybody, we thought the Filipinos would be smart enough to realize that we had done them a favor by stealing their country, and uh, they didn't see it that way. So then what did we do? We we said they were insurgents. Have you ever heard the word recently? You mean they went they from were, freedom fighters to insurgents? Yeah, they, they were uh, insurgents. And all the other words we use in the front pages of our newspaper to describe the people who are fighting us, uh, around the world, those were the those Filipinos. Well, the Filipinos thought that they were George Washingtons. They thought they were fighting for their own freedom. And uh, the freedom country, America, came in and said, you know, you're not white, you're not Aryan, you haven't followed the sun. And again, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I say that kind of casually, but let me go back and say Theodore Roosevelt, in his presidential messages to Congress, released to the American public, that's how he explained why we are fighting in the Philippines, because we followed the sun, we are Aryans, we have democracy in our veins, it's genetic, the Filipinos don't have it, and they have to realize that the only way they can get improved is by accepting us white people, and then there'll be trickle-down civilization. That was basically what they were saying, 
And I want to say, I'm not criticizing these guys like as ogres or, or horrible guys. That's, that was the belief system. So we have to question right now, today, what are we all agreeing to that we think is the way the world is, but it really isn't. It's just our beliefs. Well, if I remember correctly, the United States really didn't have the army in a position to put them on the ground in the Philippines, and they they sort of rented the insurgents to take most of the, the damage and carnage from the Spanish with the promise that they could be independent and self-serving after the Spanish were dealt with. And then when the Spanish were surrounded inside Manila, uh, the Americans got the bright idea to cut a deal with the Spanish where they sort of pretended to have a little bit of a skirmish, let the Spanish leave with their stuff. They made a deal, and basically the, the, the allies that we had, which is a recurring theme in your book, the allies that we had of the local people were hung out to dry by the Americans. They, they gave the good old boy club with the Spanish, uh, you know, the heave-ho they wanted uh, to get out, and then immediately made the, the uh, local people, the freedom fighters, the enemy, and began taking the battle directly to them, and basically massacring the people of the Philippines. Yes, sir. It was an extension of what we did in the western part of the United States. It was Indian fighting, and we went out to an agricultural uh, set of islands, the Philippines, and we introduced uh, industrial warfare. And, uh, you know, the the... Histories that hate to admit it will admit that we killed a quarter of a million people, but that's such a lowball figure. We weren't counting. It was just mass massacres. I, there's stuff not in the book that uh, I cut out. It just got too long. But one one newspaper man goes down there, and he says, I'm standing on a hill, and I can see to the next hill, and I can see to the next hill, next hill, miles and miles away. He said, there is just miles and miles of black smoke going out towards the horizon. The black smoke represents the American army marching in a straight line, burning and killing everything in its wake. Mm -hmm. And you show pictures in your book of lining the Filipinos just in front of trenches that they dug and just giving them a bullet in the head, as far as you can see, bodies filling up trenches. Well, you know, you got to spread liberty. Yeah. Well, you see, that's a good point. And I, and I want to point out now that, uh, uh, you know, you, you said you have only so much time with us, and we want to respect that if that's the case. But we wonder if you could go just a little bit extra time with us for, for a few more important questions that we have. Okay, let's do a few more. Okay, well, I just I want to be respectful, and you you tell us when when you cry, Uncle. Okay, uh, because this information is so very very important. We appreciate your valuable time, and I want our listeners know to, to know you're going in overtime with us, and we appreciate this. The couple of things that really shocked me about the Philippines and the data, one after the other, just shows absolute barbaric brutality going on. Was that there's a picture you show. Uh, indicating the kind of activities that were going on during our occupation of the Philippines, where it, I think it was Life uh, magazine, where it actually showed two American soldiers waterboarding a Filipino soldier. And I guess there were hundreds of Filipinos that died due to waterboarding by our military in the Philippines. Yes, sir. 
Waterboarding was uh, widely used in the Philippines, and uh, it was uh, totally approved. Theodore Roosevelt defended it. And then when American American uh, airmen were waterboarded by the Japanese later in World War II, uh, we convicted those Japanese of war crimes. And then now waterboarding by Americans um, is, again, okay. But, you know, they called it the water cure back then. Would you oblige me a minute to just read the words from the good old Army marching song, The Water Cure, uh, just to let let it know how they interpreted that. Uh, this is right out of your book, page 108. It says, this is what they sang in the U.S. Army about their waterboarding. It says, get the good old syringe, boys, and fill it to the brim. We've caught another, N-word, and we'll operate on him. Let someone take the handle who can work it with with a vim, shouting the battle cry of freedom. Hooray, hooray, we bring the jubilee. Hooray, hooray, the flag that makes him free. Shove in the muzzle deep, shove in the nozzle deep, and let him taste of liberty, shouting the battle cry of freedom. We've come across the bounding main to kindly spread around. Sweet liberty whenever there are rebels to be found. So hurry with the syringe, boys. We've got him down and bound, shouting the battle cry of freedom. Oh, pump it in him till he swells like a toy balloon. The fool pretends that liberty is not a precious boon, but we'll contrive to make him see the beauty of it soon, shouting the battle cry of freedom. Keep the piston going, boys, and let the banner wave, the banner that floats proudly o'er the noble and the brave. Keep on till the squirt gun breaks or he explodes the slave, shouting the battle cry of freedom. Hooray, hooray, we bring the jubilee. Hooray, hooray, the flag that makes him free. We've got him down and bound, so let's fill him full of liberty, shouting the battle cry of freedom. Wow. I don't know what to say about that. That's, that's yeah, it just makes you want to salute, doesn't it? I don't, yeah. I better just not say anything. <laughs> uh, the, makes me really unhappy. Th- this, uh... This went on for a long time in the Philippines, did it not? And in fact, didn't they make proclamations back to Congress that they had these people who were the original freedom fighters freeing their land, that we had had them beat and that they were destroyed numerous times? Uh, a year later, they would come back and say, oh, the, the insurgency's over. We've conquered it. It's over. There's peace. And then they would say it. Visitors would come and find out that there was still fighting everywhere. And then every year after year, more and more money spent, more bodies piling up. They would always say to Congress that we've had this battle won, that it's over. Did they not? Well, yes, sir. Uh, but I don't know if you're referring to Afghanistan, uh, <laughs> Vietnam, uh, Philippines. Now, you're, you wouldn't be saying that there's a common theme there, would you? You wouldn't be applying that there's some relevance between them. Well, it's 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 when I, you know. I write these books about a hundred years ago, and then I pick up the New York Times and look at the front page and you see the exact same phrases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's 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 similar phrases. Look at. And again, I don't. You know, my dad raised the flag on Iwo Jima. I'm a proud American, and I don't mean to pigeonhole Americans here about brutalities here, there, Philippines. I'm not excusing them, but what I am saying. Any nation at war apparently thinks torture of the enemy is fine, and they will approve it if mm-hmm. you look at history. Mm-hmm. The difference is the president. 
torture is very interesting. It starts and ends with the president. It drops like a dime down through the system because the military is a hierarchical system that follows orders. So Theodore Roosevelt thought torture was fine. There was torture all over the place. Franklin Delano Roosevelt in World War II, for my second book, Flyboys, I searched far and wide for American systematic government-approved torture. I thought they had to be torturing these Nazis or these Japanese mm -hmm. officers. I looked all over. No. I'm not talking about one guy torturing, but like at Abu Ghraib, Iraq, mm -hmm. Afghanistan, systematic torture that came out of the White House. Theodore Roosevelt, systematic torture that came out of the White House. Mm -hmm. Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, no torture. Every, mm -hmm. there were 14 million Americans that served. They got the message. Mm -hmm. We interrogated prisoners in World War II. We taught them, we, we, we treated them with decency. We had a number of techniques, no physical abuse. We got great documented intelligence. This idea of beating people for intelligence is so inefficient. It doesn't mm -hmm. work. This tick-tock of, you know, what would you do if the terrorist had an atom bomb and you got to beat him up in a waterboard? That's not, that's just a false thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, even... So I'm, even, I'm, I'm, I'm all for, right. I'm all for efficiency against our enemies. I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I'm opposed to waterboarding and torture because I'm a softy. No, I'm an efficient hardy. And I would like us to be efficient and torture is very inefficient. Mm -hmm. Well, it does something to the torturer, too. That's the other thing. It does something to the morality, whether people admit it or not. Uh, you can say you're Christian and you have higher ideals and you are superior spiritually over, the, quote, the other people, the savages. But when you lower yourself to that kind of activity, you can say that all day long, but you cannot not go unaffected. And, and I would point to Vietnam, too, I believe... Uh, was it the Phoenix uh, Project or Project Phoenix where they had them in cages doing the same things? Uh, I've heard of that. Yeah, Those guys were bad dudes. Yeah, I, th I, I think there's something that you can find. Even we've we've had stories here about uh, recent records that were just released about the British doing it to the Germans after, after World, War World War II. Even people who happen to be on our side, uh, and they didn't care. Uh, yeah. They had been actually agents on our behalf against the guys. So. Um, the, the moral superiority that, that our media tells us about who who we are and where we're from that does not hold water with the kind of facts you find, or even those of us of faith and what we see in the Bible, it warns us that this is what humanity really is and what we deal with. Now, Roosevelt's PR, you talked a lot about that, and I, I know we need to come here to wrapping up, but, but he had a technique to keep the public on his side in areas like in the Philippines. Didn't he use the World's Fair as a way to put in the people's mind the fact that we were taking savages and actually raising them up through our interactions? So what we're talking about is the 1904 World's Fair. And uh, I'm 56, and I remember Judy Garland in a movie about the World's Fair. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis. <laughs> Meet me at the fair, right? And... You know, it's a huge fair, and it was very dramatic, and ice cream was invented there, and you can... What what I was shocked to learn is that the majority of the fair was this uh, display of race that Theodore Roosevelt put on, 
what he did, Roosevelt was being accused of like Abu Ghraib uh, barbarian, uh, barbaric tactics, torture and everything. So he said, I'm going to set this right. So he takes the fair and the American government takes a huge amount of the fairgrounds and they build a Filipino village. Well, the Filipinos, they don't bring in the Filipinos with PhDs. They don't bring the Filipinos in who have won worldwide art uh, awards. They go out and they get the, you know, mountain people, these really uh, unsophisticated Filipinos, and they bring them to the United States. Well, some of these Filipinos put on clothes and ties, and they take that all away from them. They have to wear loincloths you know, bone kind of nose, through the nose kind of stuff. And they display these Filipinos in the most degrading way. They give them dogs to eat, and so the Americans can sit there and watch these Filipinos scratching around the dirt eating dogs. And it reinforces uh, Roosevelt's uh, point, you know, we have to be tough with these people. Look how uncivilized they are now. I want to go back to the fact this wasn't just Theodore Roosevelt doing a tricky thing. This was this was Harvard. This was Yale. What's your favorite university? Whatever it is, mm-hmm. go back and look. In 1905, they had charts about the hierarchy of races. So Americans were understanding this in in uh, context of the hierarchy of races. There were low races, high races. And Roosevelt presented the Filipinos as basically Pacific Negroes who needed uh, uh, Americans to help them out. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, I almost can't stomach some of this stuff. Bionic. I know. It's it's extremely disturbing. And, uh, well, that's an understatement. You know what disturbs me more is when people, people, hear, people hear this and they yeah, shrug their shoulders. Well, so it, it didn't impact me. Yeah. You know, I've the, had those people over there are not so me. Many times with people. So what even, if they're in a jail unfairly? That's like, not me. I can't even. I can't even tell you how many times I've had conversations with people, and their end comment with, they, they just go, "Well, okay." At the end of the day, I don't care. Are some of those people professing Christians? Some of them are. Although I would say most of them, probably more often than not, aren't. I know many pr- professing Christians. You'll find at church every week they feel that way. Yeah, I know. I can't even. I can't even fathom that. Mm-hmm. Like, how, like, God was so intense about justice and mercy. It's right there in, in Matthew 5. What have we learned through the weeks about how God dealt with the Arab people, how he dealt with Ishmael, dealt with Hagar, dealt with all these people who everybody else gave up on, but God never did? God yeah. regarded Cornelius, the well, Roman centurion. So. I mean, That's right. That's right. I mean, and, and you know what? When I. I had so much ignorance, and I know I still have a lot, but I had so much ignorance on these things. He didn't give up to, on me. I know. He's let this experience be one to help me maybe get a little bit quicker view before I'm so quick to judge people. Yeah, yeah I know. Same with me. Yeah. He sees all the mess I am and says, that's good. I can use that. Well, and that's a good thing for us to remind ourselves on this show, because we're almost done this week, is at points you always raise up and been raising more about love. Love needs to be the main theme of what we do. And we're not <laughs> doing does. this just to, like kick people, you know, who are gone or behind or just be angry all the time. Mm-hmm. We want this to stir people to really remember love, I embrace love you, and love people. I had mentioned, mentioned this off air, but there's a person 
that I deal with on a regular basis, they're probably listening. It's like, yeah. they're like, they just have no guile in their life, and it's just so refreshing to see them interact with others. Well, it's just awesome. Let's try to more be like that, yeah. and let's be like Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. I didn't mean to rush you. I'd rather be like Jesus, but, I mean, Merv's not bad. He's pretty close. Uh, uh, Come back tomorrow for our last segment. Until then, we hope your future's always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And Tom, getting pretty depressed, to be honest. But I'm glad I know these things. It's like sometimes you have to go there, bionic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good good, good middle name. Mm-hmm. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're getting ready to uh, uh, broadcast our fourth and final segment with James Bradley, who's the author of the recently new book, The Imperial Cruise talking about evidence of the long cycle of exploitative imperialism in Christian America. Uh, that sounds like a bunch of liberal whining, uh, bleeding heart li- whining. But it is, it's you something you need yeah. to know about if you've not heard it, particularly if you just tuned in today. Uh, and it's something Christians need to deal with. They need to deal with and recognize the rhetoric that's coming out of our media channels, Christian media channels, mm-hmm. conservative channels, uh, and how we're demeaning to other people and caricaturize them. And uh, I know we can be guilty of that, doing this, and even talking about people who we disagree with and in our limited time and talking. We don't want to do that. But we want you to be a judge, be armed with this information. So we're going to go to our last segment here, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quick. N- now, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the one exception in Asia, which is the the important crescendo in your book. There, there was one group in Asia that um, sort of just passed under the bar as far as meeting muster by the criteria of the the Americans and, and others in the West, particularly the Americans, as far as is almost being sort of pseudo Anglo-Saxons in, in terms of having some minimal level of civility that it ter- determines they could be of some utility for them to be our proxies in Asia. Who was that country and in how did our involvement with them impact world history after that? The Japanese came to Theodore Roosevelt, and they knew that Roosevelt was primarily motivated by these race theories. And they said, you know, Mr. Roosevelt, look at England. You know, England is this white country off the coast of of Europe, and it's different than Europe. And look at Japan. Japan's an island country off the coast of Asia, and we're different than Asia. Now, Mr. Roosevelt, look at those Chinese in 1905, or look at those Thais or Vietnamese. They're walking around with ponytails and they wear dresses. We're Japanese. We have Brooks Brothers suits. We're stringing telegraph wires. I mean, we're civilized. We're we're like you. 
and we can represent American values into Asia. And Roosevelt wanted to penetrate into North Asia, but he couldn't get the Senate to give him troops. So he said, wow, this, you know, the Japanese are friendly with, with me, and uh, they'll represent American interests. So he said to Japan, yeah, I think it's a very good idea if you guys expand into Asia. Just as America has a Monroe Doctrine in South America, where we are kind of the boss with this Monroe Doctrine overseeing South America, you should have a Japanese Monroe Doctrine for Asia. And I think it's just dandy if you expand into Korea. You know, here's the keys to the American Embassy in Seoul. I will withdraw my ambassador, and you can use the American Embassy to begin your civilization process of Asia. Well, that was the problem that Franklin Delano Roosevelt would later encounter. My father fought on Iwo Jima not to protect his mother in Appleton, Wisconsin. The Japanese weren't going to invade America. It was Japanese expansionism in Asia that was the problem in World War II. That problem was greenlit, anointed, and cheerleaded, cheerleaded by Theodore Roosevelt in the summer of 1905. I was shocked to learn that my dad probably witnessed the horror of Iwo Jima because of what Theodore Roosevelt had done in his administration. And, and and that is the the crescendo shocker of your book. That, and as I understand it, the the Japan was sort of an isolationist country. Um, they didn't want to be corrupted by the corrupt West and their influences. They want to be kept to themselves. The 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 Western nations, British, the Americans, sort of foisted themselves on them, and that they were sort of drug, almost kicking and screaming initially into this activity. We had advisors fr- from our group that that were embedded with them, that sort of slowly led them into embracing this Monroe Doctrine. And then, as it says in your book, when they were coaxed into this war with the Russians over property, they they start with a sneak attack on the Russians. And Teddy Roosevelt himself, does he not applaud them for the sneak attack on this other power by saying that's just the kind of thing we taught them? Or they're playing our game, I think was the terms they used, was it not? Exactly. So... Pearl Harbor, you know, Americans are outraged, but the first Pearl Harbor was against the Russians in 1904, and Theodore Roosevelt looked at a sneak attack, unannounced, just like Pearl Harbor, but Theodore Roosevelt said, I I am very pleased by this. The Japanese are playing our game. Hmm. And the game was, he thought, if Japan expands into Asia, this is really going to be good for the world. Well, that expansionism, that's what World War II in the Pacific was about. Mm-hmm. So, once again, I'm not a guy saying, oh, my God, look at these terrible people, Theodore Rose. No, 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 no. I'm a guy who's saying, how is it possible that I got a degree in history and it's been hidden that Theodore Roosevelt greenlighted, encouraged, pushed, cheerleaded the Japanese to go expand into Asia. How come that is not commonly known when I can document it with so many pages in the Imperial Cruise? That's the baffling thing to me. I would think part of it would be if if you and others knew that it might influence your support for activities that go on today. Well, the activities I support, I founded the James Bradley Peace Foundation, and for 11 years we've been sending kids to China and Japan for one year of schooling. So 17-year-old high school kids 
go to Japan and Korea. They live for a year. And the idea is that they're going to change. And when they come back to this country and they migrate up into the power structure, maybe the next time when we're discussing whether we want to talk it out or fight it out, maybe one of these kids will make a difference. Hmm. So, so you're not just sitting around complaining and saying, boy, we really did some naughty stuff. This is really bad. Please buy my book. This is this has impacted you, where you've actually beyond your education process, which you've done through this book for people like myself and our audience, you've gone the extra step of saying, in your own little small way, you're going to try to help promote a, a positive interaction with people that are different, rather than more opportunity for mass killing and other kind of things, and at least add something on the side of the ledger to try to promote more peaceful coexistence. Is that basically what you're doing? It is, but uh, once again, you're using a lot of big words. I'm just a poor boy from Wisconsin who <laughs> doesn't understand those big concepts. That this is my bottom line. I talked to a bunch of second graders the other day, and I said to them, "Do you guys have any friends that you never met?" And they, you know, they had to think. But think about that. Do you have any friends that you've never met? In other words, what that means is you can't have a friend unless you need them. So how are we going to be friends with the rest of the world if we're sitting in our houses? If I was emperor of this country, I'd kidnap 40% of the high school kids in the United States and then just FedEx them around the world and drop them out of airplanes. And you drop a kid over Chile, lands in the Andes, and he's got to make his way back to Cleveland, he's going to encounter a lot of people and learn that they're just like him. You know, I was raised in northern Wisconsin, when I was a kid, you know, the Russians were this kind of strange and the Chinese were this kind of strange and the Peruvians were different and these tribes and people. And then I went around the world when I was 19 and I noticed something. I noticed almost everybody sleeps at night. Mm-hmm. Almost everybody eats three meals. Mothers suckle their young. Parents want better lives for their children. In other words... The similarities are vast, you know? The differences are tiny. You eat eggs or noodles for breakfast. I mean, there's not a lot of difference between the world's peoples, but we can't know that sitting at home. So we, mm-hmm. we've got to get out. And I encourage foreign travel, foreign study among kids, and I, I think it's the only solution. Mm-hmm. Well, there's there's one problem, uh, one one complication with your approach of people being more informed and enlightened about other people and what we have in common is that it makes it much it more the heroin trade. Well, that but it makes it much more difficult for the powers that be when they need to sell us via their media organs or other approaches that they have certain agendas that they want to accomplish and they need to get us up in a fevered pitch of hatred or superiority over other people to serve their financial or whatever interests they have, it makes it much, much harder for them to accomplish this job when you're going out there letting people meet people and find out that they're real folks and that sometimes even our own leaders don't tell us the whole story uh, when, when we find out with our own personal experience. So you, you, you could really, you know, if, if what you're talking about catches on, you could really stymie their plans. Uh, you well, know, to, to do their adventurism and things like that, people get more informed. Well, my mother, you know, always says to me, all war, civil war, we're fighting each other. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. Well, yeah, I know we've taken a lot of your time, and I'm going to have to, there were so many other questions I wanted to ask you. I, I want to talk with our audience sometime about this intriguing statue, The Rescue, 
which says a whole lot. I had to go do a little research on that after I saw that in your book because it really symbolizes um, s- some of the distorted thinking that's made its way into our Western culture. But but and please correct me on these facts because I'm I often get them wrong. But to, to summarize the the experience you talked about with Japan. Uh, the process of, of setting up Japan to the way we wanted resulted in us stiffing another ally, someone else who relied on us, and that was the uh, nation of Korea and the leadership there. And we had made all sorts of promises to them, uh, of which we immediately backed out on because they didn't serve our interest at the time, and took another leader of another nation and basically used them as a pawn. Uh, and we couldn't blame the Cold War for it because the Cold War didn't exist at the time. So that wasn't the reason du jour. But, um, and, and at the same time, I understand from your, from your book, the one, one reason that for all this secrecy and skullduggery and everything was that basically Roosevelt was doing all these things with the, with the actual knowledge that he couldn't get the Senate and these other groups to be able to pass what he was doing. So he was doing everything he could under the table, basically. Kind of an end run around the people. Uh, and around around his own people he was yeah. representing, his own population. And, and I think there was a contempt even somewhat in some of his words for the Constitution and some of the restrictions that he was under that he envied some of the other nations that weren't so restricted, was it not? Yeah, it was, uh, uh, I document um, some unconstitutional uh, behavior there. Korea, Roosevelt just saw as a declining race like the Apaches. So they were Apaches, and the Japanese were an ascendant race, a potent race, going to help out. And you can imagine my surprise when I find Theodore Roosevelt encourages the problem that Franklin Roosevelt later dealt with, the problem that swept my father from the northern hills of Wisconsin out to the little hill of Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and and also, as you say in your book, uh, because of him setting up this whole scenario and the schemes he came up together with the Russians and the Japanese, and even the Japanese using him as part of this, he received the Nobel Peace Prize for helping to broker peace between the Russians and the Japanese, a war that he sort of encouraged, very strongly encouraged, and at the same time, he was betraying Korea and basically giving up their nation to be under Japan at the same time he was receiving a Nobel Peace Prize, correct? That's all true, but he thought that he was doing very positive, good things. This is the problem. You mm-hmm. have American leaders who know nothing about the area, know nothing about the people. Roosevelt knew just incredibly little about Asia, but he knew these race theories. So the Koreans were Apaches, the Chinese were Apaches, the 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 Japanese were kind of like whites, and there was all this racial theory that he applied, and he thought with this racial theory he could understand uh, Asia. Uh, the ideas that he had led to World War II in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible story of misunderstanding uh, the imperial cruise. You know, it's it's such a lesson when I think forward to how he used the Japanese thinking in his own writing that he could control the Japanese and keep them as a buffer to help keep the Russians in check for, for control of Asia. When I think about how we used Osama bin Laden uh, and, and funded him, had him on our payroll to attack the Russians, 
thinking we could control him and use him to to be able to control the adventurism of Russia, uh, which also <laughs> was our own undoing later. And we've had that same, you know, we were also very uh, supportive of uh, Fidel Castro at one time, called him a freedom fighter, and then changed our views later because we, we, we again, guessed wrong and meddled in something that we didn't fully understand. Uh, but the thing that I, I kept noticing, and, and, and Taft was involved in a lot of this as well, too, was that they kept reporting that, hey, we've got this situation in the Philippines, for example, under control. While money kept coming, it was just draining the treasury. Uh, more and more insurgents, they wouldn't give up their fight for freedom. We kept killing more, putting more of them in their graves. And nothing has changed, has it? I mean, basically, aren't we doing the Mike, exact same profit, same procedures now? Mike, do you, don't you get a lot of criticism telling the truth about Osama bin Laden? You would be. Yeah, I was going to say you'd be surprised, but you probably wouldn't. <laughs> we, uh, well, you know, uh, we're on a Christian radio station here, and uh, we get a few people that are shocked to hear what we're talking about. Uh, the fact that he was on the payroll right up to to nine one one, and who knows afterwards. Um, miraculously, we couldn't capture him after after the time he's here. Although nine years, and he's although the hundred mile stretch of the mountains. The president's dad was hosting his family on the day of nine one one here in America. It's true. Flew flew him out, yeah. but but nothing has changed in any of these activities. And the same air of superiority that we had over the savages of people that didn't have our religion, people that didn't dress like us, didn't have our values are the same thing we're accusing the people in the lands we occupy today in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, we point out their, we exaggerate their religion, we exaggerate uh, their uh, their aggressiveness. Uh, they go from being freedom fighters to insurgents. The guys that are good guys suddenly become our enemies in these lands the longer we stay. Are there any other parallels that stand out with you uh, from what you looked at in this era and what we're dealing with today and any other lessons learned? So many, uh, so many. You're summing up a number of them. History is repeating itself. I really, I really think the Imperial Cruise is a good read for what we did in the past and what, and some of the assumptions that we are having right now. But I think we've summed it up real well. I, I think you have, you know, we've covered all these countries and. I really thank you for this uh, opportunity to talk to your audience about about these things, and and uh, I want to listen to you guys on on your programs. You, I think you're doing a real service for your audience. Well, thank, well, thank you, sir. That's that's an incredible compliment. We do have a large archive, actually. We have uh, six years of shows like this yep. that we've tried to take one issue like this at a time and try to sort of turn over the the stump, as we say, or the, or the the rotten log and show what's really going on. But we mean it in a way that can hopefully make us all better people. And that seems to be the response from the audience, that the, the overwhelming response we get via email around the world from our listeners is, we just didn't know. Nobody told us. Just like I didn't know until I read your book, all these facts. And, and, and I have to tell you, I went through a lot of emotions of, of anger, of shame. I had lots of shame. I, I thought of how I viewed other people, how I viewed my own country and the world. Um, and I have to tell you, and this relates to my last question, and if you don't feel comfortable answering it, that's fine, because um, you, you've not really no, let no, no. on. No, no, I'm going to I'm going to answer it. Okay. Well, it, <laughs> it 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 relates to to what's core for us here, because we we address a Christian audience, 
And, and our personal beliefs are that if we believe the claims of Christ and following his steps, that we have an additional duty to know the truth and to respond and to own up to, to the world that we're in, and particularly American Christians, and that we have to set the example. And, and we have to first admit with the things that we've done and address it and try to do something to make things right and to first accept things, and that's the first step of our show. And, and as you know, uh, much of the Christian community in America now perceives us as being a battle against uh, Muslim extremists that we are told worship a moon god uh, and who have uh, previously had a, a wretched primitive existence of depravity in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, you know, at least our, our government media tell us this. And so we had an opportunity to liberate them and show them a more civil way of life. Uh, and, and meanwhile, portions of the American media have joined them by venerating, uh, most recently, I'm sure you've seen it on uh, some of our major TV news networks, the Christian principles of the Founding Fathers and their intended establishment for us to be a Christian nation and that we were a Christian nation all along, which really echoes the same kind of words I hear from these leaders in your book uh, in this earlier time. And, and they say that our only hope to rescue the world uh, is really via our military actions. And because of our, we're a Christian nation and our Christian faith, and believe me, uh, Brother Tom and I are both serious about our Christian faith. We're Bible-believing Christians. Uh, we're very orthodox in those beliefs. But this is the word that's going down, particularly from religious channels uh, in, in saying this, and, and very supportive of our actions, very defensive of the actions that we have in both of these theaters of conflict. Given the information that you've uncovered and you talk about in your book, what advice do you give to the American Christian community as to the accuracy of their current understandings about these parts of the world and any other perceptions and actions that they might consider? My advice is thou shalt not kill. Hmm. That, I, that rings a bell with me. I have read that somewhere. I think Maybe that was... Jesus uh, carried a handgun. Was Je- I, <laughs> I believe that was Jesus. It was it, under his tunic. He also had something, the golden rule, wasn't it, about do unto others as you'd have them do unto you? And yeah. I guess, did that, does that still apply to people who have different religions? Do you, do you think the golden rule still applies? Once again, you know, I'm just a guy from Wisconsin. I'll deal with the golden rule after we uh, do the thou shalt not kill. Okay, so that's step Let, one. Then, then we'll move on to golden rules, but first... Uh, I shall not kill. Okay. And then I'll have an opportunity to uh, do the golden rule. But I'm going to do the golden rules to my daughter who's, who's awaiting uh, dinner with me uh, here across the room. I have to tell you the truth. I understand you got to go. Giving, giving you the hairy eyeball. Huh? Yeah, I understand. Um, these are the things we wrestle with on Future Quake. And, and it, it's not an opportunity to just go around and kick our country. Uh, and I know that's not your desire either. I know you, you love your country, and that's because that's why you share these kind of things is because you, you love and care. And, of course, it's uh, out of respect for your father and, and what he felt like he stood for and what he believed in his heart he stood for, I'm sure. And uh, that's why it's important that these things are uncovered. And I want to encourage you to continue to um, bring more of this out. I'm encouraging every one of our listeners to get the book, take the time to study it and search your heart on how it influences how you look at the world today, and then go buy a number of the books. Buy a case if you can to give us Christmas gifts to your friends and family members, particularly people in college. It's funny you mentioned that I was totally going to do that. 
Yeah, I, I see a lot of my family getting this book for uh, Christmas. Get get this book and let and and let them think about it and meditate on the significance. And that's why I just need to ask you: How can our listeners get your book and your other works? Well, uh, the Imperial Cruise, the book we're talking about right now, the Imperial Cruise, it's available everywhere. It's in your bookstore and it's on all the online uh, Barnes and Nobles and whatever. And my other two books, Flags of Our Fathers, my dad raised the flag on Iwo Jima. Flyboys is about George Bush's uh, escape from uh, uh, being beheaded. And uh, my third one, The Imperial Crew. So they're all, they're all bestsellers. They're out there. And uh, I really love that people would read it and be complimented by it. And I want to thank you guys for having me. Well, I want to thank you for coming. And how, how can they contribute? If they want to contribute to your foundation where you're trying to make the world a, a safer place, how can they do that? Uh, JamesBradley.com. Okay. Hmm. And they'll, they'll find the directions there to your foundation where they can contribute. I want to thank, thank you so much. Thanks for going overtime with us. Uh, I had a boo-boo that was probably my problem, and I just want to tell the audience that you extended extra grace to me. And I appreciate that so much. I thank you for your work. I, I hope you'll come back with your next work. And always feel free to check out our shows at futurequake.com. We could use a critique from you. I'm sure you could probably help set us straight on some of the, the things we talk about there, but we'd appreciate your comments. Okie doke. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome. We're back at the Future Quake Show with Dr. Future. And Tom, I'm sad. Bionic. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, we wrapped it up there. Um, wasn't too sure what Mr. Bradley thought about our show at first, and I know a lot of times our guests have to get comfortable and know where we're coming from mm -hmm. and know that we take these things seriously. Even if we have two goofy names, mm -hmm. we care about this stuff. I Although think he, he did kind of forget them. <laughs> well, yeah. but he, he, uh, I think he understood that we were serious about what we do, talking about this, mm -hmm. and particularly about the, the Christian issues here. Um, he made himself come off as a very simple kind of guy, very simplistic, but his book is a fine piece of work. Mm -hmm. It's great scholarship, uh, a lot of background research in it, and he, he's just being very humble, but it's an excellent work. Mm -hmm. and, and something I didn't get to mention on the show, just thought I'd mention to you, um, sort of what typifies this whole theme uh, of our era of history was a statue there in Washington, D.C., where the presidents all took the oath of office for like a hundred years. And it was a statue that was commissioned, real fancy one, called the Rescue. And it actually features this savage, like Indian, with a hatchet in his hand and some some pioneer woman cowering, holding her child. And he's like going to get yeah, her. Like a president blasting this, him or well, something? Well, this great big guy in Renaissance dress grabs him from behind and is restraining him, and he looks at him sort of like a dad, like he's looking at him, and it makes the Indian look really, really small and weak and like he's all confused and doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. And, and he's showing the great wisdom. just, you know, yeah. rescuing a woman kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, it's the same artist that did that did a, a statue about Washington where he, he's sitting without his shirt on, and he's got his fingers pointed up in the air in one hand and down below, and it looks just like the Baphomet. That, uh, you know, the goat head Mendez mm -hmm. with, uh, uh, Eliphaz Levi, the sorcerer. Did. Wow. I'd like to people, see. People, ever people have said that. Yeah. Wow. Look on Wikipedia. Just look them up. L look up the rescue and you'll actually find that and the other statue there. Mm -hmm. But, uh, it really symbolizes what Chris Pinto's talked about on the show that we are pushing so hard in the Christian community this duality of Christianity and America. 
Mm-hmm. And I think we're finding more and more data to completely decouple that. Yeah, I, I think this book is pretty much the, you know, the Mark 48 torpedo to the stern. It's a slab duck. Yes, you're yeah. exactly right. And believe me, it's not the USS Liberty that's being hit. Uh, this ship's yeah. going down a lot easier than the Liberty. Yeah. Somebody else that won't go down is Merv, who can come tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. That's it for this week. Uh, I have to go cry in the corner. Well, get this book and educate yourself and let it embolden you to speak the truth. Come back for tomorrow's Tremors tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. I love technology. Bionic. I love technology. Yeah, he's sporting some advanced technology for uh, and forever. <laughs> this Friday show. And if you're feeling your oats because of your new technology there, you think you can also even tell us what the theme and the purpose of Friday's show is on Future Quake? Uh, well, I don't know about the theme, but the name of the game is news. And the name of the game is uh, turning the rock over and seeing what is wrong. Climbing around behind the scenes. Okay. Like the rotted stump over and log and yeah, the like, termites. Yeah, wow, look at all those things. Yeah. I thought those were politicians, but they're scorpions. You know, that's one eloquent, one eloquent way to describe it. Or you could say tomorrow's tremors or today's review of the future's news. I wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. Yeah, you wouldn't be that square. Where for the last six years we've recorded, particularly for the last two and a half years, we have done every Friday a review of the news that's going on, take a break from our interviews with our wonderful guests that we have and find out what's going on currently here mm-hmm. and um, I've got maybe just one story to go through that's that's a few pages but it's wow. I think it's very important to you uh, would you like me to tell you a little bit about my experience last week at the meeting I went to yeah, hit me. yeah that's a that's a really important thing actually well um, got a uh, email that was sent out to all the clergy people in Nashville and one of them who uh, knew us, friend of our show, forwarded it over to me, mm-hmm. probably just FYI. But uh, uh, the old doc here actually decided to go to this meeting and even took Mrs. Future mm-hmm. along. Uh, and this was a meeting uh, on the other side of town about Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. And it had uh, various speakers in this town because Nashville has become a flashpoint of this whole thing about um, so you were there mosque. to support the phobia part? Yeah, that's yeah. me. That's phobia <laughs> quake. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, 
as you know, uh, pastors here in this area were the ones that burnt the Qurans when mm-hmm. everybody else decided not to. Yeah, uh, terrible and ridiculous. There's a, there's a mosque and, and other Islamics that are trying to be built. That There's been mm-hmm. vandalism and they've been told to go home and all this other kind of stuff. So yeah. that's why I think they had this meeting. They even had people from uh, some clergymen from America's United for Separation of Church and State, which is mm-hmm. a, a group that uh, is patterned or, or you know, um, Made out to be that they're anti-religion, when actually what they're trying to say is like save, save religion. Don't let the yeah. state run religion, yeah. so everybody's safe for it. So anyway, there was the imam from the local center there, sort of a young man, who explained who he really was and what they were really about, and other people. But the thing that was interesting was the first people who came up to the microphones, I presume were Christian people. I mean, that's what they let they sort of let on. And did they did they say they were Christians or by the nature of their comments, I believe they were or that they implied they okay, so I need to be careful in how I phrase this. But Mm -hmm. the key thing is it was rather embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was very embarrassing because it was supposed to be a dialogue for respectful conversation to find out who people really are, what they were really up to uh, and to, you know, help dispel any kind of misunderstandings or things on ignorance. Well, the first people that come up, basically, uh, first guy comes up and wants, wants the imam to sign a document saying that, uh, what was it? There were several things he wanted. He was that against they, killing, slavery. Killing, yeah, that he was against slavery. And then he had another thing he wanted him to affirm that he, he was against killing homosexuals. And several things like this, but anyway, it was just a confrontation, you know, sort of that's like a, you got from the cameras. That's an odd thing for a Christian to be, like, really intense about is killing homosexuals. I, yeah. I mean, you know, not that you know Christians shouldn't be killing anybody necessarily, right, but right. that seems like that would tend to be low on the list. Well, it was, uh, it was, they they took advantage of the opportunity because the local news was there that filming this. That sounds like some type of false flag, something or other. I well, think, you know. and they, you know, but it was like a big, big scene the way they did it. It wasn't yeah. like, hey, I've got this real concern. Would you explain where you really stand on this? It was like very dramatically staged, huh. where they run up and says, I have this document. And he turned around to the crowd, showing it over his head, saying, I want to show everybody this is the thing, and I want you to speak before everybody here in the cameras and say whether. You believe slavery is wrong, and I, if you do, I want you to sign this right here. And, and, and you know, he's trying to get back to the subject matter of the, the meeting, uh-huh. and the guy keeps bringing it up and sort of parades himself up to the desk and sets it there and gave, hands him a pen. Will you sign this? Uh, and then there was somebody who came on and said, uh, um, the first question, just right off the bat, well, are you part of Muslim Brotherhood? Are you? We have reason to believe you are. Are you part of Muslim Brotherhood? And, uh, you know, he was trying to say, come on, that's not even what we're talking about here, trying to answer it. But it was just the atmosphere was one, not of, like, trying to get the answers, but trying to make yeah, it was a scene. Like, yeah, like the Night of Long Knives kind of a thing. Yeah, 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 or Crystal Knock. But anyway, um, I couldn't sit any longer after I'd seen all that. So so you jumped up and turned well, the tables over. Well, particularly everybody. after we had our show started a brawl. With, with Brother Todd Nettleton mm-hmm. and the Voice of the Martyrs, I referred to that, you know, that we'd had him on the show and that Reverend Wormbrand had talked about how he'd been, you know, 14 years in communist jails and had been three years in solitary confinement and mm-hmm. had a lot of time to think. And um, I just uh, I said that, you know, his books say that Jesus only loves uh, he does not fear and does not hate. And that since we're followers of Christ, we're not allowed to hate or fear. 
And so even if somebody what was about up that to no good. where Jesus carried like a 45 under his tunic? <laughs> I mean, how do you Yeah, how I you forgot that? about that. But, uh, oh, man. You, you know, the thing was, the point wasn't what this person's doing. It's how do I respond to it? And how do I respond to anybody different than me? And so I explained to him, as my understanding as a Christian, that I couldn't do that. And uh, as it turns out, there were some people who I knew there from some of our past radio experiences that would be definitely more of a liberal bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, w- I was really embarrassed at what they observed of Christianity uh, before that period of time because mm-hmm. it wasn't just people asking hard questions. It was something that just seemed like staged to be a big event. And so um, it really bothered me. But a lot of people came up, even some rabbis and some other people, and said, thank you for saying what you did. Uh, mm-hmm. And, in fact, I told the guy when I went to the microphone, I said, I have to tell you, I, I would be considered a fundamentalist Christian and I said, I appreciate you not accusing me of being part of Aryan Brotherhood, uh, because I am. <laughs> Funny. And he smiled, you know, because that's, that would be the equivalent, you yeah. know, of, of sort of what he's getting. Well, it, it, it certainly is a, um, it's a, it's a seething indictment to those who acted foolishly when you read, you know, in the Gospels it says, you know, you'll know my disciples by how they love one another. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like, oops. How do we square that to this? And it's never qualified by how the other people are acting. No. It's not like, well, are those people acting nice or are they not acting nice? Not nice. We don't get a pass. Yeah. you got to pretty much just try and love everybody. That's right. Yep. That's right. Well, as I mentioned, I have a story related to this of something I know you'll care about, but it's a little long. So mm-hmm. um, if you want to start with the story, jump oh, on it. Oh, uh, i got tell you what. That's here's a Here's sort of a, like, it's not quite so long. Okay. I'll, just, I'll just read a paragraph to it, and well, I just do whatever you want. Yeah. Well, how about soft shoe and a, you know? Nah, dot, skip that. Dot, we'll dot, save that dot, for pyro. Dot, dot. Yeah. Um, Boston College law student asks for a refund on tuition. <laughs> a third-year Boston College law school facing dismal job prospects and a mountain of student loan debt has offered the prestigious Hub Institution a unique deal: keep my degree and give me back my tuition. <laughs> In an open letter to BC Law's interim Dean George Brown posted on Eagle Eye Online, an online student-run newspaper at BC's law school, the anonymous dissatisfied customer said soon-to-be grads are about to enter one of the worst job markets in the history of our profession, and an overwhelming majority uh, of them can't find jobs. That's obviously Mm -hmm. lawyers. We feel discouraged, scared, and in many cases uh, feeling rather hopeless about our chances of ever getting to practice law, the student wrote. The law school student's missive then proposed a solution to this problem. The student offered to leave law school without a degree at the end of the semester in exchange for a full tuition-free fund, a move the erstwhile aspiring attorney would says, says would help BC's U.S. news ranking because it wouldn't have to report another graduate, graduate state of unemployment. <laughs> that's some, that's some for creative negotiation. You know, that, would be, that would be an expensive accommodation for one data point in their statistics. Can you imagine how much money they'd be refunding for that? Uh, yeah, quite a bit. Probably yeah. in the neighborhood of like $70,000 or something like that. Uh, yeah, or a lot more than that probably. Really? Well, you think every year. Well, what, what, how much I is bet it you it's got to be thirty grand a year, I bet. Yeah, well, he's went, what does it take, four years to go through law school? Well, really, technically, if you go for your undergraduate, I don't know if he's just counting law school, but it's four years on top of your undergraduate. Yeah, I, I think he's just counting his, his undergrad. Well, that's still or, four I'm sorry. years. I'm sorry. He's take, it's Boston College Law School, so I'm guessing he's probably just yeah the law school part. I'm guessing they're not going to pay it no matter how many years it is. 
I don't think so either, but I thought it was a great story. Yeah. Um, a little bit lighter than normal, but, you know. Yeah, that is pretty lighter. Well, compared to like, yeah. the world's going to end and there's a trans- asteroid with which you know, we always try to head on. <laughs> head on. Which we always try to give our listeners, if you Cheerians are yeah. counting on some doom and gloom from us. Uh, I, I, well, don't worry, man. I got... I got one. I got one from uh, old Will Grigg here, an essay that's powerful that if we okay. have time we might get to. Will, would you like me to get us back jump, a little bit to doom and gloom? Yeah, jump into the evil. Okay. Jump into the sad. Well, this is this is something that that I know you'll care about, and I do, and I want our listeners to. Um, this is related to an urgent prayer that went out from Tehran, Iranian pastor at risk of death. Um, I've already prayed for that guy. I know you have like ten times. But I want to want you to hear, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Okay, a Christian pastor in Iran who was sentenced to death for what is being called a thought crime. Advocates for Pastor Yosef Nadarkani told Assist News that while all of the other prisoners arrested and a wide-ranging crackdown by Iranian authorities have been released, Nadarkani still faces the death penalty. Present Truth Ministries says all detained recently by the Iranian government except for Yosef and one other pastor who is awaiting one more judge to pass the death sentence are now free from prison. Uh, okay, it says also, um, more recently, our sources have confirmed that a written verdict has not yet been delivered to Brother Yosef Nakarni's attorney. He is currently under a sentence of death, but they are delaying the delivery of the verdict in order to put more pressure on him to turn away from Christ. Once the written verdict is delivered, there will be 20 days to appeal to the Supreme Court. Currently, his attorney is being denied any access to him. However, security officials have informed the courts to temporarily delay his execution until further notice. Yosef is being kept in a security prison in Lakan, Iran, which is just south of Rasht, his hometown. Below is a quote from an Iranian mullah so that you can understand their frame of mind. Here's what the mullah says. Mm-hmm. The circles for promotion of Christianity, Baha'ism, Wahhabism, Sufism should be eliminated with the efforts of the law enforcement force as per God's wish. See, they have their own dominionists. Yeah, I was going to say, they have a final a dominionist like group. People have argued there. Mm-hmm. in public lately. The most significant psychological disease is created by these meetings and circles. They are corrupt and the biggest disruptors of the country's security. You know, that's interesting talking about the psychological disease. I just saw DSM 4 today that said anybody who is a free thinker, that is now technically a disease. Really? Yeah. I should have brought that. Hmm. But, I wonder uh, if we could get government money then for that disease. Support yeah, group. but you'd have to take a bunch of pills and stuff. Yeah, institutionalized. Grand Ayatollah Valid Khorsani, in a meeting with Qom Province's law enforcement commander, uh, said, "Currently, our course of action is to continue." Oh, I'm sorry. This is the ministry saying, "Currently, our course of action is to continue in prayer for Yosef to have strength to endure this pressure and suffering, that he would soon be delivered from the hands of his enemies." Pray for the safety and wisdom of his attorney. Our greatest weapon is prayer. Secondly, remember that Esther was put in a particular position that she was able to use to deliver her fellow Jews from death. Uh, if uh, He says, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, there shall be enlargement and deliverance rise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who shall knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? I'm sure that's what Mordecai told Esther. 
Esther did what she could from the position God put her in. We are members of the body of Christ, and all of us are members of one another and of Jesus Christ. We cannot be silent at this time. First, we pray, but secondly, we lift up our voices to speak against this great evil. It has been confirmed that what we are doing is working, and that the pressure that Iran is feeling is the cause for the delay in Yosef's execution. Our continued course of action should be to alert our government leaders and the international media. Please alert Fox News, CNN of the situation. If we all begin uh, to alert the media to this, we might get some coverage of this story. Mm. Now, here's something you may be interested in. This is a message from actual brother Yosef Nakarni. This -hmm. is the pastor himself of an Iranian church who is remaining in prison to be executed on October 24, 2010. Hmm. Uh, yesterday. Yeah, which I think has been delayed from the earlier comment there. Uh, It says, Our dear brother has been kept in custody since October of 2009 and has recently been sentenced to death. Uh, This message has been translated from Farsi to English. Okay, here's his message from our brother in prison to you and me and our Futurians. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, uh, Salam. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am continuously seeking grace and mercy to you that you remember me and those who are bearing efforts for his name in your prayers. Your loyalty to God is the cause of my strength and encouragement. Wow. There's a man in prison telling us this, okay, and staring death. For I know well that you will be rewarded, as it's stated. Blessed is the one who has faith, for what has been said to him by God will be carried out. As we believe, heaven and earth will fade, but his word will still remain. Dear beloved ones, I would like to take this opportunity to remind you of a few verses, although you might know them, so that in everything uh, you can give more effort than the past, both to prove your election and for the sake of the gospel that is to be preached in the entire world as well. I know that not all of us are granted to keep this word, but to those who are granted this power and this revelation, I announce the same as Jude, earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. We are passing by special and sensitive days. They are the days that for an alert and awake believer can be days of spiritual growth and progress. Because of him, more than any other time, there is a possibility to compare his faith with the word of God and have God's promises in mind and survey his faith. Therefore, he, the true believer, does not need to wonder for the fiery trial that has been set on for him as though it were something unusual, but it pleases him to participate in Christ's suffering because a believer knows he will rejoice in his glory. Again, this is a man facing death from his executioners. That's that's so powerful. He says, Dears, the judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin in us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, those who are enduring burdens by the will of God commit their souls to the faithful Creator. Promises that He has given us are unique and precious. As we've heard, He has said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. That was in my Bible study today, Matthew 5. Mm. How can it be possible for a believer to understand these words? Not only when he is focusing on Jesus Christ with adapting his life according to the life Jesus lived when he was on earth. As it is said, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And is it easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail? Have we not read and heard, because straight is the gate, narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Many attempt to flee from their spiritual test. 
and they have to face those same tests in a more difficult manner because no one will be victorious by escaping from them. But with patience and humility, he will be able to overcome all the tests and gain victory. Therefore, in the place of Christ's followers, we must not feel desperate, but we have to pray to God in supplication with more passion to help us with any assistance we may need. According to what Paul has said, in every temptation, God himself will make a way for us to tolerate it. O beloved ones, difficulties do not weaken mankind, but they reveal the true human nature. It will be good for us to occasionally face persecutions and abnormalities, since these abnormalities will persuade us to search our hearts and to survey ourselves. So as a result, we conclude that the troubles are difficult, but usually good and useful to build us. Dear brothers and sisters, uh, we must be more careful than any other time, because in these days the hearts and thoughts of many are revealed so that the faith is tested. May your treasure be where there is no moth and rust. I would like to remind you of some verses that we nearly discuss every day, uh, such as our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But as long as our human will has priority over God's will, his will will not be done. As we've learned from him in Gethsemane, he surrendered his will to the Father. My Father, if it is possible, make this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but thy will. What you are bear- what we are bearing today, it is a difficult but not unbearable situation, because neither he has tested us more than our faith can endure, nor does he do as such. And, and as we have been known from before, we must beware not to fail, but to advance in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and consider these bumps and prisons as opportunities to testify to his name. Hmm. He said, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. As a small servant, necessarily in prison to carry out what I must do, I say with faith in the word of God that he will come soon. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Discipline yourself with faith in the word of God. Retain your souls with patience. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. May, uh, may you be granted grace and blessings increasingly in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yosef Nadakani Lakan Prison in Rasht, 2 June 2010. Wow. I think we should read that like every show. <laughs> That's Brother Yosef, who's facing death right now as we speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that may have been his last message to the rest of us outside the prison. Wow. Um, and that his, that's his charge to you and me and all our listeners out there. So would you mind if I said a prayer for yeah, him I, and his family? I was going to say, one of us better say a prayer for him, okay. so you go ahead. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name right. I think yeah. it's Yosef, but I think the Lord, the Lord will know who yeah. I'm talking. Yeah. The Lord will know because the Lord's heart is on him right now yeah. all the time. So mm-hmm. let me just say a quick word. Heavenly Father, we pray for Brother Yosef. We thank you so much for his testimony and how he's standing strong for you in the face of of, of very likely death or possible death. Lord, we thank you so much now how he's focused on the rest of us uh, and and trying to strengthen our faith and to use what he is enduring as a sign of faith, Lord. This gentleman who's been in prison for a year and has had, I'm sure, very, very harsh treatment uh, and had every opportunity to be discouraged. But his testimony is strong, Lord. I pray that you would give him the peace that passes all understanding. Uh, Lord, we pray, and I and uh, I know our Futurians are joining with us in prayer right now. We're all praying around the world as we listen to this show together. Uh, believers praying for him, 
Lord, that if it be any possible way that he could be delivered and it would be part of your will that he could be delivered and restored to his fellow believers and his family, we ask for that, Lord. We know you can do it. You do it all the time. And we, we ask for that, Lord. But if for your glory's sake and for some purpose for, for your cause uh, that he needs to die a martyr's death, Lord, then we pray you would give him the strength and the, and the ultimate peace to know that he has got a, a crown waiting for him, Lord, and, mm-hmm. and a white robe that all the martyrs will have. And that, Lord, his testimony could stir the church around the world from what he's enduring. Lord, we pray for his family, his immediate family, that probably has, has suffered terribly financially without his ability to take care of them. Lord, I pray that you would give them strength, mm-hmm. make sure all their needs are met, show the rest of the body of the believers how they can take up his family uh, and take care of him. Lord, please show in our hearts anything that we can do for him directly mm-hmm. in these days. And, uh, Lord, I want to pray for his jailers. Lord, I want to pray for the people who have imprisoned him. Uh, Lord, these are people who either are very diabolical people that are cynical and care not about the things of God and are only about political things. And I pray that you would prick their heart, Lord. And if you had to scare them or whatever it is, that you, that you would have them turn from their wicked ways, Lord. And they would turn away and they would see his faith to show the reality of who Jesus Christ is and see real faith for once in a, in a real person. Lord, I pray that they would turn from what they're doing. And Lord, if some of these people are actually devout and are the, are the kind that the Bible says in the last days, it says when they persecute Christians, they believe they'll be doing God's will. They actually believe that they're doing God's will. And there's some devout out there, Lord, that feel like Christianity is the wrong way and they're trying to please God. I also ask that you would reach out to them, that you would mm-hmm. prove to them that the reality of Jesus Christ and his lordship through the testimony of this believer, that they would turn, Lord. And we'd pray that it would be done with his release. But even if he if he walks through the, through the portals of death, Lord, for your glory, we pray that they would still turn and repent of their ways, Lord, and that the sin would not be held uh, on their behalf of what they're doing, Lord. They would find forgiveness. Lord, we just pray that we would be found faithful in lifting him up and that he would feel our presence as well mm-hmm. as he feels yours in that jail cell in the days that he faces ahead. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 That was really good, man. Well, I'm, I'm sorry I took up basically almost all the show. I'm sorry. Oh, darn. I knew that was important to you. It was important to and, you. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about Islam. We thought people take pot shots. I suspect that some ways are being set up as a uh, sort of a diversion for some other enemies doing other things. Yeah, but no that kidding. doesn't change the fact that there are still Muslims out there and groups, institutions that are persecuting and killing Christians. And mm-hmm. we've never we've never doubted that. We've never disputed that. Uh, of course, Hindus are doing it too. Other groups, and in fact, even fellow Christians have killed Christians. But mm-hmm. but it's real, and our believers are, are suffering out there. But you know what? He didn't call for us to have a worldwide attack on on his persecutors. Uh, he was calling to embolden and strengthen his brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And I hope we can be faithful to his yeah. charge to us. Yeah, wow. We've got a minute and a half. Is there something you'd like to share with us? Oh, let's see. The Treasury, this is Treasury draws negative yield for first time. Uh, uh-oh. Go back. Oh, technology I can tell you about this story. <laughs> yeah, he, he brought his iPod in here because... It, you know, he gets so busy ministering to other people that he didn't have time to print his stories this week, so he's using this high-tech 
yeah. uh, purpose a little, here. Possibly a little bit too. You know, it's really bad. Make it actually make it work. It's really bad when you make our regular studio equipment look high tech and reliable in comparison. Yeah, I know. It's so high tech yeah. it doesn't work. That's well, actually pretty much par for the. Let me tell you, I read that story and I can just comment on what you said. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Future and I invest in those Treasury your, your, inf- your, your tips. Yeah, your inflation tips, protected securities, mm-hmm. and the new ones that are issued, which we're not buying the new ones are uh, actually at a negative real interest rate, which mm-hmm. means they will pay a little less than what inflation is. Um, and that's first time ever in the history that they're doing that's that, crazy. which means you can't get returns. People on fixed income can't hardly get any kind of returns on anything right now. Yeah. Uh, also, the thought is maybe inflation is going to take off. Yep. So, and that's why they're doing that mm-hmm. because com- there's usually a difference between what inflation is and what regular treasury bond and tips are. Mm-hmm. And the punchline to that is that they think inflation is going to take off. Yeah, that was going to be because what the Fed's doing. Yeah, you summarized it. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's cool. I mean, we only had about time for that, so it worked. Sorry. I don't need technology. I've got Dr. Future. Well, I know you love technology, and we also love Murph, who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay. Always and forever. Sorry I took forever on that story. No, no, that's cool. That was really important. We're going to lift up Brother Yosef. Yeah. Maybe having to do so. Maybe have him on the show one day. That'd be cool. Uh, Come back next week for another great guest. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.